Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. The Carl Nelson Show. You're rocking with the most awesome miss. All right, let's go. Good morning, Wake Up Squad, and thanks for starting another day with us. Later, activist Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. will discuss last month's tribute to his dad. Tributes were paid to Fred Hampton Sr. on his 75th birthday for his contributions to the Black Panther Party and the black community. But before Chairman Fred, Brother Amandi, a musician from the legendary Watts Prophets, will explain the difference between hip-hop and rap. Yeah, on this 21st day of September, if you're a fan of the elements, you know what I mean. Prior to Amandi, though, psychologist Dr. Denise Wright will discuss the ongoing stigma in the black community when it comes to seeing a counselor. But to get her started, we have Brother Davon Love, who is from the one of the leaders of A Beautiful Struggle. Davon, good morning. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. And, and uh, since your first time here, give us a little bit of your background. So, um, Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, you know, we say LBS for short. Uh, you know, we're a grassroots think tank, and many of us come out of uh, the activity of high school and college policy debate, one of the most rigorous forms of academic debate that exists. A lot of folks, um, that, particularly on the conservative and the political spectrum, um, that were engaged in like public policy and think tanks, you know, commodity activity. Donald Rumsfeld once said the most powerful person in the country is the person that determines the high school and college debate topic. Folks like Carl Rove and others, you know, they come out of the activity of policy debate. And I came into the activity during an intellectual and academic innovation in the activity where, you know, black debaters were challenging um, racism and white supremacy um, and the research methodology and the pedagogy in the activity. And that culminated in, uh, in the early 2000s out of the Pan-African Studies Department at the University of Louisville. Dr. Eddie Warner, Warner and Daryl Birch um, developed a team um, of majority black debaters and culminated in, you know, Elizabeth Jones and Tanya Green, two black women. They got the quarterfinals of both national championship tournaments. My college debate partner, who was a year older than me, he's also from Baltimore. He actually went to Louisville for two years. He transferred um, to Tulsa University. Um, Daryl Birch moved from Louisville to Baltimore, trained Devin and I. And in 2008, we actually won a national championship, kind of expanding on that intellectual legacy, you know, using the black arts movement, the black aesthetic, which actually one of the major arguments we used to win nationals that year. And then myself and my colleague, um, there were, you know, a handful of us that, Figured, you know, how do we use these skills that we got from that activity, the given kind of the worldview and perspective that we were trained to socialize in? And so in 2010, we formed Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, you know, using that kind of revolutionary pan-African nationalist perspective to engage the public policy arena on behalf of black people. And we looked around and saw many of the advocacy organizations that were 
advocating on issues that impacted black folks in Baltimore throughout the state of Maryland. We noticed that a lot of them weren't, you know, with the, many of them were white-led organizations, um, and, and even fewer of them had the kind of revolutionary perspective in the public policy arena specifically. So that's why we founded LBS. And since 2010, you know, we were involved in, you know, stopping the construction of a $104 million juvenile detention facility in East Baltimore. Um, we were a part of police accountability efforts, you know, both during the uprising in 2015. Um, that was that you know sparked as a result the uh, killing of uh, Freddie Gray. I'm involved in pre-trial reform, um, you know, investing more, um, helping to get more public investments in black-led grassroots organizations, um, you know, and expanded to you know advocacy on reparations locally. Um, on, you know, black arts and entertainment on the historic Pennsylvania Avenue corridor. So our work, you know, has, has, you know, sprawled over the years in terms of the different kinds of issues that we're engaged in. But again, all of it from that kind of revolutionary pan-African nationalist perspective. Wow. So you have a bird's eye seat to this, the problems and the issues in Baltimore. What do you think is the major problem in Baltimore City? Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Um, I mean, there are many. I mean, I think, you know, for us, um, you know, one of the things that when we look at the nature of the, the politics in Baltimore, and I'm sure this is the case in varying degrees in, in cities around the country, um, is that we don't have kind of independent black community controlled electoral infrastructure that is needed to have kind of a sustained movement. Um, that can that can engage politics in a way that advances self-determination for black people. You know, a lot of the people who, you know, decide that they want to be elected officials, you know, they're not coming to our community in order to bolster themselves per se, but they're going to, you know, different networks, different kind of major corporate, nonprofit, philanthropic networks, because those are the networks that, you know, one ingratiates themselves in to get the kind of, you know, campaign contributions, the kind of platforms that often make a person viable, and then those choices are imposed in our community. Um, and so what ends up happening is, I think, you know, people are disappointed in what elected officials are able to deliver on, uh, because ultimately they don't work for us. They're not, you know, we're not the reason they got elected. They got elected because of the proximity of those major white corporate nonprofit philanthropic institutions. And so in order for us to really be able to, to have kind of a, a political um, landscape and to have, you know, like the officials are really accountable to our community, we have to build that independent electoral infrastructure. Um, and so, you know, it's one of those, for, uh, for me, I think that's one of those things that's, that's fairly central. Um, and I think a lot of the problems we see in Baltimore, I think we can trace back to the fact that 
again, you know, where we aren't the ones necessarily that are, you know, lifting up and producing those that occupy elected office. We're, we're getting choices imposed on us. We're having to pick from those. Um, and so I think that contributes to a lot of the challenges, you know, in Baltimore, again, among many other problems in Baltimore. Yeah. So, so how do we change that around? Because it, it, it seems like it, it's set up, it's, it's structured in a way that uh, it, it's built in a way that it, it seems like it can always win. It's almost a no fault. You know, it's by default, these guys are in there and are not doing the work for the people. So how do we change that? Well, you know, I think it's I think it's a combination of things. I think, um, firstly, I think you know one of the ways that white supremacy and racism impact a collective consciousness as a people is that many of us perceive that, or many of us have never experienced black people winning on our own terms. And I think a big part of what happens is that so many of the images and narratives that we have of black people focus primarily on you know, these kind of notions of inherent pathology, right, or, or notions of black people's kind of inevitable failure. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, is important for people to note is that, you know, in our community, there's a lot of, like, tremendous work that is happening every day that doesn't get a platform. But, again, because it's not the kind of work that's spearheaded by or sanctioned by kind of a major mainstream institution, what ends up happening is, is that, you know, it renders a lot of those efforts invisible. So, for instance, like one of the kind of perpetual challenges that, you know, is is uh, impacting Baltimore um, is a spike in, in violence and homicide. And, you know, too often when we look at, you know, local uh, corporate news um, and the kind of media ecosystem, you know, in Baltimore, you know, what what happens is, is that, you know, much of the images and narratives are about, you know, instances of violence, of crime, et cetera. And one of the things that's extremely unfortunate is that, you know, there are lots of, you know, community-based, you know, Black-led, uh, grassroots violence prevention efforts, right, that, you know, aren't relying on or depend on law enforcement. But that's like, you know, people in the community, people who formerly were involved in street activity or clergy or folks who, you know, spend their time boots on the ground, who've been doing tremendous work to impact uh, violence in Baltimore. And so even like as we speak, you know, when you look at a lot of the news coverage on, you know, violence and crime in Baltimore, you know, as we speak, you know, homicides are down, non-fatal shootings are down. But that's not something that is reflected in the media's coverage of it. And so there's a group. Um, in Baltimore called We, Our, Us, which is a group of, you know, folks formerly involved, you know, in street activity, you know, clergy, um, and a variety of other folks, you know, professors, you know, people that are boots on the ground um, who have been on the front line in, in, in the Western District, uh, Western Police District in Baltimore, which is one of the major areas that they've done work in, you know, they've seen some pretty historic decline. Um, in the Western District, which historically was one of the most um, violent districts in Baltimore, it's the district that, you know, Frederick Gray lived and was killed in. And so, you know, there's progress there. But because of the persistence of the way the white supremacy impacts our consciousness, it's almost like this inability for people to, and, and when I say people, the inability of the media to understand the importance of projecting narratives of black people winning in that regard such to create the kind of morale, the feelings of, you know, victory 
that I think understanding the broader challenge, the persistence of the broader challenges, but understanding, you know, that, that black people can be successful on our own terms without, you know, the benevolence of entities outside of our community to address our problems. And so, you know, for me, that's, that's one, you know, big example of that, um, you know, as it relates in terms of how to address it, which again is to recognize that, you know, black people are not a problem to be fixed, but the solution to our own problems. And, you know, when as a community, we recognize that as the paradigm as to how we approach ourselves, our community and the issues and challenges we face, you know, to me, that's one of the things that's necessary, you know, to, to empower ourselves. Right. And, and 11 after the top of the hour, Dave on Love uh, family from Baltimore, discussing some of the issues in Baltimore. He's part of a group called Leaders with Beautiful Struggle. I, I got to ask you a question because you mentioned the media. And I know there's a couple of TV stations in Baltimore. If it, if it bleeds, it leads. It seems like uh, they're, they're just full of the coverage of uh, the carnage in the city. And they ignore what you said, that the, the, the crime has been going down slightly, but it is going down. They, they don't talk about that. Let me ask you this, though. Do you think there's something more behind the, uh, the, the these media outlets who, would, who uh, you know, keep pushing in the, the fact and putting in the face of the people that uh, Baltimore's terrible, the crime is terrible, out of, especially our young black man, everything's out of control. Do you think there's, is it by accident or by design? Do you think they're doing it deliberately? That's, I should put it that way. So, I, absolutely, and I think that there are two aspects of what I what I think is the agenda that's behind the, the media coverage. Um, I wrote a piece that appeared in Maryland Matters, um, you know, a few days ago, uh, which is you know a newspaper that covers Maryland politics, and you know I focus on you know Fox Forty Five, which is a news outlet in Baltimore City, um, and you know people, you know I'm sure your listeners are familiar with Sinclair Broadcasting, right, which is you know one of the major companies. Um, you know, one of those Fox companies that projects a lot of this kind of right-wing conservative messaging. And so two aspects of that. The first... Um, All right, I tell you what, hold that thought right there because we got coming up on a break. I want to break your turn of thought because I think this is important because, you know, a lot of times people don't understand how the media works. And what, what they hear, they think it's gospel. And, and they're always, you know, reporting and they'll report the news, but also they'll omit some things as well. So I want you to get in and break that down for our listeners, especially our listeners in Baltimore. But it's also, if you're anywhere listening to us in our listening audience, you know, Davon's about to tell you how the media works to get you believing and get you thinking that you're against a group or a situation or an issue and you should be for it, as Malcolm taught us late earlier. 14 after the top of the hour. We'll be back in four minutes, though, after our first look at the traffic and weather around different cities right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. Good morning, family. Thank you, Kevin. Twenty feet, especially in Baltimore. A couple of TV stations say that would do it. The one special, just off the chain, doing it. But uh, Dave, I'm gonna let you finish it. What you, your solution is? You you were about to tell us before we left yeah, the traffic okay. and weather update. Yes, sir. And so thinking about um, you know Baltimore and the media landscape. You know, I mentioned Sinclair Broadcasting Group. Um, you know, David Smith. The, you know, the Smith family. Um, and, you know, when you think about, you know, Baltimore, as you mentioned, you know, cities around the country that are primed for gentrification, you have, 
you know, Alex Smith, who's a part of the, you know, Smith family that owns the Sinclair Broadcasting Group, who has, you know, Atlas Restaurant Group. And, that, you know, he's a part of a, you know, collection of other, you know, business owners that would like to gentrify Baltimore that see the challenges in our communities as a nuisance to their development agenda. Um, and so, you know, what, what Fox 45 has been is in many ways kind of a propaganda arm of projecting, you know, the, the, the notion of black pathology, the way that it attacks, you know, black leadership, you know, black political leadership, um, and the way that it projects, you know, Baltimore communities with the purpose of, you know, in much of their news coverage, you know, focusing solely on law enforcement as the way to address the problems, you know, facing black folks. And again, as you mentioned, kind of generating and sensationalizing um, the issue of violence and crime. And this isn't to say that there isn't violence and crime and that that's not something that should be discussed. But it's discussed in a way that it's so out of proportion to what is happening in the community to generate the kind of hysteria and fear that then, you know, can generate the kinds of policies um, that would take us back to the 80s and 90s war on drugs, tough on crime approaches that, you know, decimated so many of our communities. And so... You know, so that's one aspect of it. It's the fact that they're real kind of material, you know, interest of those, you know, white folks in the donor class and the corporate sector that have a vision for Baltimore that doesn't involve black people, but to the extent that black people are involved are appendages of the kind of corporate and economic interest. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is that given um, the pushback um, nationally around the way that law enforcement has negatively impacted our community. And some of the success that, you know, my organization and many others have been able to, to make um, as a result of being able to push back on some of those policies. So in, so in 2021, in the heels of the uprising that came as a result, the, the killing the murder of George Floyd, uh, you know, one of the things that happened in Maryland, Maryland uh, was one of the states, was the first state to establish a Maryland, a Maryland police officer's bill of rights. Um, and so there are, you know, 13, I think, or so states that have a, um, you know, police officers, law enforcement officers, Bill of Rights. Um, and so in 2021, we were part of an effort to um, repeal um, the law enforcement officer Bill of Rights uh, here in Maryland. Um, we were part of an effort, um, the changes to the Maryland Public Information Act. There was a brother named Anton Black that was killed by a law enforcement officer on the eastern shore of Maryland. And so there was a bill called Anton's Law that changed the Maryland Public Information Act that, you know, previously the investigatory records of law enforcement were prohibited from public disclosure. So 2021, we were able to pass Anton's law that now make those discretionary disclosures where now as you know, the public, we can engage in an oversight function of law enforcement. In 2022, um, there was the passage of the Child Interrogation Protection Act, which is a bill that requires that when law enforcement do a custodial interrogation of, of a young person, that that parent is notified and that an attorney um, that the young person is required to speak to an attorney to advise them as to how to engage law enforcement. So there are a variety of, pro you know, a whole bunch of progress that was made. That is the kind of progress that law enforcement did not like and that prosecutors didn't like. Um, and so what has happened is that, you know, Baltimore County's um, state's attorney, who was the former chair of the Maryland uh, State's Attorneys Association, Scott Schellenberger, and the new state's attorney of Baltimore City, um, Ivan Bates, um, and prosecutors around the state have come together along with law enforcement. And one of the things that is happening now is that some of the increases of um, youth violence and crime 
is now being projected by Fox 45, you know, as such a problem that it requires going back to tougher policies that both, you know, Scott Schellenberger that I mentioned and Ivan Bate um, and, and the role of state's attorneys and law enforcement has advocated for the repeal of the Child Interrogation Protection Act, right, and using the sensationalized narratives um, about um, about young people engaged in violence and crime as the basis for essentially chipping away at the rights of young people, right? And even down when you look at, you know, the data for, for crime and, and violence in Baltimore, 13 times um, more of the violence um, that is perpetrated in Baltimore is committed by adults than young people. But if you watch, you know, Fox 45, it projects it as such a dominant problem, again, out of proportion, and it's advocating policies that, again, would continue to disenfranchise our community. And part of the, and, and, and really a part of what is missing from the narrative that Fox 45 puts out, what they'll say, what law enforcement will say as well, so these young people who, as soon as we arrest them, they're out the same day, they're in and out, they're in and out. And, you know, what's, what's, in many ways, kind of, you know, ridiculous about that is, is that when you actually look at those individual cases, it's usually the shoddy, incompetent work of law enforcement, where when they bring folks in, they're not actually able to get the kind of, of um, you know, charges and convictions in the areas that are necessary to get the people who are the drivers of violence um, to, to actually get them. And what ends up happening um, is And this is where, you know, in terms of people understanding the real mechanics of mass incarceration, it is when, as Fox 45 and these prosecutors do, when they focus on the most egregious instances of violence, and then they attempt to legislate in that direction. But most of the situations that we get in our community are things like, you know, I'm in the car with my friend, my friend has a gun for protection, I didn't know, I get pulled over, there's a gun there. Right. Or I was in an altercation. I have a gun for protection because I live in a community where other people have it and I get into a dispute. Right. These aren't folks who are people that are, you know, interested in just maiming the community and causing havoc. Right. But that's the those are the majority of the kind of cases. But the media projects the most extreme instances of brutality, but then causes, you know, the, the climate and pushes legislators to legislate in the most harshest way based on those violent extreme examples and then what that ends up doing is things like sentence enhancements or mandatory minimums that cause people that again you know in the examples that i gave a few moments ago to be the ones that actually are the ones that get incarcerated and get more time and not the people in our community that are the true drivers of violence in our neighborhood and so that's again how the media those media projections actually lead to the kind of policies that perpetuate mass incarceration and, and, and i guess the last thing i'll say on that is that one of the things that is disappointing is that too often, you know, it's you have a lot of black people in our community because of the hopelessness in our community, understandably so, the feelings of, you know, things not changing, that Fox 45 takes advantage of that hopelessness and projecting those narratives that sometimes make people in our own community make, make us susceptible to advocating for those kind of draconian, tough on crime, sense enhancements, mandatory minimums, but again, don't actually get at the people that are the drivers of violence, but make people who are proximate to those communities more susceptible to spending significant time incarcerated, which produces the kind of criminogenic element that causes the problems in our communities. 
and that's an astute uh, observation because you know when I first started in Baltimore, that's 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 what I came up with. But I, I was told I was an outsider, so I, you really don't know what's going on. But, but from the outside, that's what it looked like to me. And and some of those uh, folks, uh, as you mentioned, have fallen in line with what they see on television on on these particular stations and and what they're doing, and they're played right into their hands. Sometimes when you think you're stopping the thing or you're fighting against it, you're really helping it. Thirty minutes after the top, they are though, Dave. On but. They have an agenda. We know they have an agenda, but some of our folks don't know that. And I'm glad you, that's why I let you lay it out, lay it out like that. We know they're not going to change, but what can the community do? What can they do if, the, if once they figure out what you just said, which I saw when I got here? What can they do? What's the next move? Well, I, w- I would say I would say a few things. One is is that, um, and it and it seems I think for some people really small. Um, but I think one of the things is to, to do our best to help provide more of a platform, like uplifting the work that folks in the community are doing. And, it, and again, it sounds simple. But, you know, when I talk to people, um, you know, who are, you know, just engaged in casual conversation, they'll say, well, Davon, you know, what are we going to do about, you know, all the violence that's happened in the community? And what I'll say, I'll mention We Are Us, or I'll mention Baltimore Peace Movement. Well, I mentioned Challenge to Change, and Brother Uncle T in East Baltimore, Stokey, or folks like that, and they'll say, you know, I've, I've never heard of these people. Um, and so one of the things that, you know, I say to folks is, you know, if you're listening, like, look up, you know, we are us. Look up Baltimore Peace Movement. Look up Challenge to Change. Like, you know, look up um, Safe Street. Like, these are examples of organizations that are community-based violence prevention programs. And, you know, people who are interested in volunteering, people who are interested in providing support to those organizations, or just sharing the information on your social media or spreading, you know, by word of mouth, the fact that those are folks engaged in the work. I think that's one thing that is particularly important that can counteract it. You know, even, you know, in the in the Maryland Matters piece, there's some legislators um, around the state um, who actually shot me a message and said to me, they were like, you know, they were glad, you know, they read the piece. And they were, you know, glad to to learn about the organizations that I named in the piece and, you know, asked me to keep them um, informed about those groups because that helps them in their capacity and fighting back against the narrative. So so that's that's one thing that, again, I think seems pretty simple. Um, I think the other thing kind of along the same lines um, is folks kind of being engaged locally in, in some of the opportunities to do some of the empowerment. You know, I think one of, one of the challenges is that, um, you know, civic education, you know, people being involved in the kind of the, the civic machinery needed uh, to, to wield power and to invest in our community. A lot of times those kinds of, of activities, opportunities are missed, I think, because people are so apathetic and disengaged. And I think rightly so. I think you, know, you think about the way that, you know, elected officials, are, you know, the way that, that they have been in our community, um, the way that I think a lot of folks feel like promises have been made and not delivered on, I think, you know, folks get apathetic. But there are a variety of opportunities, particularly on the state and local level. I think a lot of times national politics is overemphasized and not focusing on some of the ways that folks can be engaged locally. One example of that 
an effort that LPS. I see. Well, hold that, hold that example there, because we got to take another quick break and take our first look at the news, traffic, and weather in our different cities, folks. We're having a discussion about the issues in Baltimore with Davon Love. Davon is part of a group called uh, Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. They've identified the problems in their city and they're working on it. And but uh, as you mentioned, they don't get the coverage, the media coverage that the other sides get. You want to join this conversation? Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes in Baltimore on 1010. W-O-L-B. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. W-O-L, where information is power. Good morning again, family. 20 minutes away from the top of the hour with Davon Love. Davon is part of the group Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle in Baltimore. It's a think tank. They're, they're trying to figure out uh, solutions to the problems in their city. What are your thoughts? You want to join this discussion? Hit us up at 800-450-7876. Before we go back to Davon, let's remind you, later this morning, we're going to hear from Chairman Fred Hampton. Also, uh, Amande from the legendary Watts Prophets will join us, and Dr. Denise Wright, she's a psychologist, will also be here. And tomorrow, of course, is Friday, and we invite you to free your mind, think for yourself, and join us for another edition of Open Phone Friday. We begin promptly, 6 a.m. right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, Dave, I'm let you finish your thought. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20-milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Yeah, so one of the one of the um, examples that I want to use an effort um, that LBS has been working on for several years. We saw that the legalization of recreational cannabis was a political inevitability. Well, I think we're at about 20 or so states that have legalized recreational cannabis, and so we were clear that you know it will be important both in terms of in uh, addressing the impact of cannabis prohibition policy and advancing the war on drugs but also thinking about the significant economic opportunities that our community needs to make sure that we get given you know, this burgeoning industry. And so we were clear that we wanted to focus on the idea of reparations for the war on drugs, you know, using the tax revenues that come from the sale of recreational cameras to, go, to come back to the communities impacted by the war on drugs. And while the, the effort of making sure that black people are participating in the industry uh, in a way that is equitable, we understood that, you know, it shouldn't be that black folks have to participate in the industries for our communities to get the investments that we deserve, just given, again, the damage done to our community as a result of those policies. And so um, one of the things that happened in, in the 2022 Maryland General Assembly was the establishment of the Community Repair and Reinvestment Fund. So started with Senator Jill Carter um, in her bill during that session. That was the repair uh, reparations for the War on Drugs Act. In that bill included this community repair and reinvestment fund that we're able to amend on to the major leadership bill. And what that fund did was that, or does, is that 35% of the revenues from recreational cannabis goes into a fund 
that is explicitly to, you know, address the harms done by cannabis prohibition, the war on drugs. Each jurisdiction gets a percentage of those revenues based on that jurisdiction's contribution to cannabis possession charges statewide from 2002 to 2023, with the idea being that those jurisdictions that most were most impacted, that they experienced the largest amount of cannabis possession charges, would get a larger, larger percentage. So those jurisdictions like Baltimore County and Prince George's, or Baltimore City and Prince George's County, would get the largest percentage of those. And then what the bill says, or what the, what the fund does, is that each jurisdiction has to pass a law that determines how those resources are spent. And so what we did was, um, in Baltimore City, we worked on the establishment of the Baltimore City Re- uh, Reinvestment and Reparations Commission, where each council person will get to nominate a person to serve on this commission. We wanted to make sure the reason why we put in the law that it would be a law that would need to be passed is because we didn't want it to just go straight to the executive, to the mayor or county executive, but we wanted it to go to that local council because, you know, your local council person is more accessible than the mayor or county executive, and it would give the community the greatest opportunity possible to influence you know, how those resources are spent. So we think about the historic tradition and legacy of reparations. One key part of it that I think sometimes gets missed in the mainstream is the importance of community control of those resources. So not just investment in like social welfare, you know, or social programs, but investment in the community's ability to practice sovereignty and self-determination. And so that community control is best accomplished through allowing, you know, people in the community to advocate for some of the things that they're going to need um, in terms of control and the resources and the, and the distribution of resources. And so um, Baltimore, we moved the Baltimore Reinvestment and Reparations Commission, um, but also in Prince George's County and Montgomery County, we're aware of work that's happening there um, where folks are trying to establish similar commissions where the community, again, can be engaged in making determinations as to how those resources are spent. So I mentioned that to urge folks you know, in your jurisdictions, if you're in Maryland, right, to, to be engaged in the work of, you know, trying to move a commission in fulfillment of that legislative mandate in, in, in terms of passing a law that determines how those resources are spent, for folks to be engaged in making sure that those resources go back to the community. Because the, the, the only way to maximize that opportunity that, you know, we were able to, to produce in that advocacy is for the community to be engaged and to be engaged in a way where they can be a part of you know, really having a, a real say in how those resources are distributed. So that's one example to your to your question about, like, what can we do? Being engaged um, in those kind of civic activities to make sure that our communities get invested. All right, 15 away from the topic. I've got a tweet for you, Davon. Twitter says, black people in Baltimore will never change the narrative because only 21% vote. And the tweeter goes on to say, you don't have a voice about anything if you sit on the sidelines and, and do not participate. Uh, we want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that, you know, speaks, I think, to the attitude that I mentioned earlier, just in terms of the images and, and things that are projected, you know, that that I think for a lot of people make um, the idea of black people suffering inevitable. You know, the example that I just gave around the community repair and investment fund and our work around the reparations for the war on drugs is one example of something that folks we organized around were able to be successful, right, in moving that policy that's going to bring millions of dollars to the community. You know, another project we work on is a Black Arts and Entertainment District on Historic Pennsylvania Avenue, working to build one of the first ground-up developments of a Black Arts and Incubator space on Pennsylvania Avenue in several decades. 
You know, there's the work of the Black Church Food Security Network out of Baltimore, connecting black churches to black farmers, creating a, a network of, of a black food system that is sovereign. Again, that, you know, is, you know, located in Baltimore, that exists all around the country. Um, but, you know, there, there's a variety, you know, I mentioned the violence prevention programs and some of the work that they've been doing. So there's all kinds of work that is happening where black people are doing well. We are winning. We're being successful in spite of all the challenges. So I would just say, you know, certainly there are challenges when you overcome. We need more people to be engaged, you know, in terms of electoral politics, more people to be engaged civically. But I would say that the work that's happening now, we were able to project more about those stories, about the work that people are doing. I'm involved in a project, the Baltimore Rights of Passage Initiative. We are invigorating African-centered rights of passage in Baltimore that has a strong history, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, that now is looking to be reinvigorated. And we have a group of about 20 facilitators or so that are going to go through a process of rights as a way to then bring young people through a rights of passage program to address the way in which these negative stereotypes impact the ability for young black men to do the identity formation and socialization needed. To, to fight back against some of the antisocial behavior and violence that we see in our neighborhood. So there are all these examples of things that are happening that, again, and I'm grateful to be on your show. I want to thank you for allowing me the opportunity to talk about, you know, a lot of these different projects and initiatives and policies that folks are engaged in to improve our community. Because the more people know about those things, I think people will be able to join and be a part and volunteer and to continue to amplify the work that's happening that doesn't get mainstream media coverage. Well, and that's going to be my question. Why? Why do you think the uh, other media outlets don't cover this? Why they don't report on some of the positive uh, changes that we see in the city? Why? Uh, well, I would say two. I would say two major reasons. I think the first is that you know many of the people who you know, I mean, I mentioned Fox Forty Five, which has an explicit political agenda, right? And I talked about that. So we set them aside and think about just. Some of your regular corporate media, I think many of many of the kind of corporate media that may be well-meaning, I think part of the challenge is that many of the reporters aren't from the community, and many of them have been internalized some of the same kind of mainstream um, propaganda. We think about the, the kind of a collective American consciousness and the notions of anti-blackness, inherent black pathology, inherent criminality. Those are the things that they internalize. And so as people that are supposed to be reporting the news, you know, they're going off of their basic socialization where they're not looking for and don't really understand our community enough to look for and find, you know, many of the kinds of stories that I'm talking about um, that, you know, that would be uplifting. So I think that's one. I think the other is, is, is that the consumer base for Baltimore media, it's not Baltimore. The consumer base are the suburbs that surround it. And those suburbs, you know, many of the people who have moved out there from Baltimore carry those negative attitudes. You know, it's like they lived in Baltimore, they moved out, I need to move away from those people, right? And so that's the attitude. And so when you think about the suburban region that I think is really the consumer base for, you know, Fox 45 and some of these other media outlets, is that the, this, the, what they're selling to that audience are those notions of, you know, uh, white supremacy, notions of black pathology that they feel that consumer base is interested in as opposed to the consumer base being like black people in Baltimore. So I, I would say those are two reasons why those stories are left. 
probably. Right. And that's that's a great observation on the second one. But I ask you this, though, you know, because I hear a lot of people, some people in Baltimore just really put down our young people. If if you talk to some people, black folks in Baltimore, you think that every every black child in Baltimore is incorrigible. It's it's just a gangbang or a thug, you know. And and somehow we've got to we've got to change that image. Not all of them belong in the choir every Sunday, and they're not doing that. We know that. We know we know they're not all like that. But they're not all thugs, and they're not you know. It's, 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 a lot of them seem to have written off society. And this is one of the things. Uh, Hopefully we talk with Dr. Denise Wright. Uh, she's a psychologist because she deals with a lot of child psychology as well. But And she's come up next, by the way. But uh, Dave, speak to that because it seems like if you're an outsider, you think, and you hear this out of black mouths, you know, there's throw, lock them up, throw away the key. <laughs> the, 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 they can't change and they, they blame all their problems on these young people. They've been on this planet uh, 12, 13 years and somehow they're responsible for everything. How do you see that? Yeah, you know, it, it really breaks my heart sometimes, you know, given the work that I've done, you know, over the past several years in legislative advocacy, particularly in the criminal justice arena, so much of the pushback to the changes to the criminal justice system to undo the damage done by the war on drugs gets met by met with opposition. And unfortunately, a lot of times it's, it's some of our own people who have these notions of our young people just being thugs and the like. And, and a few things to that. I mean, the first is sometimes, you know, I, I remind some of these folks who they were when they were young people. You know, sometimes it's astonishing that when you listen to their story and you think about the fact that these are folks that had their own journey and that, you know, a, a wrong decision or two in addition to the ones that they did make as young people would have landed them where a lot of these young people are. And when you and as a person, I used to I used to coach debate for ten years. I was a high school teacher for a couple of years. So as a person who's like worked with young people, you know, many young people that folks would be scared of. You know, a lot of those young people are reacting to the way the society treats them. That there's a certain kind of animus that you know black youth are exposed to that a lot of times make them react in the way that they react. And I often find, and when you talk to people engaged in violence prevention with young people is that when you engage them with love and genuine caring, that that will get reciprocated. Young people will test you because that's a part of being young, and any of us that remember us when we were younger remember that. But when you give young people that love, they return it back. And that's one of the, you know, when we are us, one of the things I love about the work they do is that that love is at the center of what it is they do. So I think that's, that's, that's one part of it. I think the other part of it, too, is that when we think about a lot of folks in our community who have moved out of our communities, right? And, and and not necessarily just geographically. You know, there's some people that live in the city that move out to the suburbs for a variety of reasons. But I'm talking more culturally and socially. You know, we think about the flight from our community. A lot of that flight is accompanied by an attitude. You know, I'm sure, you know, you're more familiar with it than I am. The white man's ice is colder mentality, where they want to go into a social environment that where they internally pathologize our community and that their distance from, from our community for them is a sign of their success. And so I think a big part of what has happened is that there's so many of our people who have, who have socially and culturally abandoned our community. And so if with all that abandonment, all that human and social capital as well as financial capital that has taken flight from our community has left our young people with a situation that none of us would 
would willingly want to be in, right? That has left. Right. Uh, Hold on, though, right there, Dave. I'm going to take a quick break here. It's six minutes away from the top there. I'll let you finish your thought on the other side. We've got to get caught up with the traffic and weather in our different cities and for the, in Baltimore. We've got to get caught up with the news as well. But we'll be back in four minutes with Dave on right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB, also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. Keep Good morning again, family. Minute after the top there with our guest, Davon Love. Davon is a, a part of the the leaders of a beautiful struggle They're from Baltimore. It's a think tank, and they look at the problems in the city and try to come up with the solutions. Dr. Denise Wright has got some solutions first. She's a psychologist. She's on deck. She will get to her in a moment. But let's wrap it with Davon. So, Davon, I'm going to let you finish your thought about the young people in Baltimore, what can be done to help them. Yeah, so I mean, just you know, just to wrap up, you know, one of the things I was saying is that just the importance of not abandoning our community. That you know, a lot of young people have been left with their with their community, with their society, um, where unfortunately, you know, much of the help that could be given to our young people has fled. Much of the flight from our community, and unfortunately, a lot of folks who've abandoned our community have gone um, to try to you know gain entrance into the mainstream, you know, as and and that mainstream culturally and socially away from our communities, and so. One of the things I would say is that just a more intentional effort by those who've had the benefit of being able to have some modicum of success, to experience some level of economic mobility, that, you know, these young people, if they're not being given opportunities, mentorships, the kind of human and social capital needed, you know, from our community to be able to chart a different course, then we're going to see a lot of the challenges with our young people that we see today. So only when we, you know, challenge ourselves to reach back, and to, you know, be intentional about addressing the communities that our young people have been left with, will we be able to really address address that challenge? So that's that's what I would say to that. All right. So, Davon, if folks want to join your 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 uh, effort, how can they reach you? So LBSBaltimore.com is our website, LBS Baltimore, and all the relevant social media. Um, you can become a sustainer. You know, we're an organization that's not a nonprofit. We're LLC. So that allows us to, you know, engage politically, you know, extremely directly without much limitation. So if folks want to support us by becoming sustainers, go on our website, Um, And if you can't contribute financially, joining our email list, you know, people who reach out, we put out action alerts to pressure elected officials. You know, that's a big part of how we get stuff done. I know it can feel small to people when you say to reach out to your legislator, but when I'm in Annapolis or City Hall, and elected officials to say, all right, Dave, on what you want, you know, given all the emails and calls they've gotten, that really makes a big difference. And so if you're not able um, to, you know, become a sustainer and contribute financially or in addition to contributing financially, you know, be a part of our email list to get the action alerts to help support the work that we do. All right. Thanks, Davon. Uh, keep up the good work and, and let's stay in touch. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. All right. That's Davon Love, folks. Uh, four after the top there. Good morning, Dr. Denise Wright, how are you doing this morning? Uh, Carl, don't ask that. You know I'm not a morning person. <laughs> you know, but, but are we supposed to ask doc, a psychologist how they're doing? <laughs> are you supposed to be okay all the time like plumbers? You shouldn't have a plumbing problem? Always, always, always ask. Well, 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 let me let me go a little drill a little on this a little bit. So, so, do you have emotional problems? Not you personally, but uh, <laughs> oh, you know what? We can flip that back. So, how are you doing, Carl? I'm doing excellent. <laughs> oh, okay, that's good. That's good. 
So I'll start again. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing just fine, thank you. <laughs> all right, good. You know, a family a doctor, right, is a psychologist. Doctor, first of all, help us out here. The difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist. You know, Dr. Wilson, and you wrote a book, by the way, co-authored a book about Dr. Wilson. Dr. Wilson was a psychiatrist. From what I know, the only difference is that I know is, is that a psychiatrist can, uh, can uh, prescribe medication, uh, medication. Is there anything different other than that between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? Uh, well, the psychiatrist, in terms of training, you know, they go to medical school, yes, and then psychologists, you know, they can get their master's or their doctorate degree, and they do, you know, research and uh, do the the clinical work. But you know, you can utilize uh, similar therapies, you know, in both in both professions. But psychiatrists are basically the ones who are able to, you know, who are trained in the medical model and also are able to prescribe medications. Like in California now, some clinical psychologists, and I think some other states, they can uh, uh, prescribe medications now. So a lot of that has to do with the lobby and you know how these different entities push in terms of getting uh, more uh, um, empowerment with regard to what they can do in their professions. Like nurse practitioners now do a lot more than what they were doing before. So um, a lot of that is, you know, in terms of those different associations and lobbying for, you know, more of an extended role in the healthcare field. Is that because of the job shortage or is this the, this the, how society's changing? Well, a lot of it is how society's changing and a lot of it is shortage. So if you look at, um, like, your first responders and a lot of health practitioners, a lot of people uh, left the profession in mass, you know, after covid because of the lack of uh, support and what have you. Um, if you look at the overall uh, issue with regard to mortality in terms of, like, folks of African descent or African Americans, um, you know, a lot of people uh, left the profession and or uh, the people who are on the front lines, um, you know, died from COVID or, uh, you know, got COVID and are having long-term COVID, so it was really, really rough for um, for uh, African Americans, you know, during that time. All right, seven so at the top of the hour. Just join us, I guess, is Doctor Denise Wright. She's a psychologist. Uh, Doctor Wright, there's, there's there's been a stigma when it comes to our the black community, our community, when it comes to seeing seeing a a counselor, a psychiatrist, or or a psychologist like yourself. What's what's the cause of this stigma? So, you know, people they, they, if they have issues, got problems. They, you know, they're very reluctant to, to call you up. Why? Well, um, I think there's, well, it's kind of like, it's kind of like tenfold. Um, there's a lot of historic context to this. If you look at overall in terms of the health field, as well as the mental health field, it's been mired in, um, you know, racist practices and attitudes. Um, and a lot of black people avoid that because they don't want to be bothered with it. A lot of times it's hard to find, um, you know, an African-American practitioner. Um, for example, only 2% of all the psychiatrists in the U.S. are black. And then you have like 4% of all the psychologists in the U.S. are black. I don't have the stats for social workers, um, which also figures into the equation but the lack of that has been, um, you know, a big problem in terms of finding someone you can, you know, um, 
go to for help. The other issue is, is in terms of us dealing with the system in and of itself, which basically looks at a context of pathology when it comes to black people. So it's always been one where uh, historically we've been diagnosed with your more severe disorders like, you know, schizophrenia um, and your other um, psychotic disorders, um, not getting adequate help, uh, not getting adequate medication or regimens. I've been in situations where I have seen um, medications that were basically outdated being administered to people. Um, when I was living over in Africa, that was an interesting concept because they had, um, they had, you know, stuff that we no longer really use over here, and they were just distributing that. I mean, you, it's amazing how, how the Western culture has um, proliferated globally in terms of the practice of uh, dealing with mental health. But back on this side of the of the of the ocean, basically what we've been dealing with is the kind of stigma, the stigma that comes along with the historical uh, way that we've been treated and in the in the profession. So um, that that that's been a big problem. All right, ten after the topic. Let me ask you this: So, how do you know whether you, if you think you've got an issue, whether I, I should go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist? How do you know which one you should see? Well, that that well, that in and of itself is one where you have to basically kind of figure out. But reaching out, for the most part, is the most important thing. You know, reaching out to whether a psychiatrist or a psychologist is is really important. If you can find an African American uh, and talk to them or whatever, that's the most important thing is reaching out. Um, the psychiatrist, in terms of Sometimes I might have a, I do have a small private practice, uh, but sometimes you have uh, people who are, need the medication. I'm not a medication advocate, need the medication. They may get, get a referral to a psychiatrist to be evaluated for, um, for medication. Um, but for the most part, if you feel like things are not severe or this is something that's acute, which has been for over a short period of time, then seeking out a social worker or psychologist uh, can be um, probably the best thing for you. All right. So, so when 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 should you? What are some of the issues that you would say I need to talk to somebody? You know, uh, Judge Lynn Tolliver, divorce court. She says she keeps uh, her psychologist on speed dial, <laughs> and she readily admits it. You know, right? <laughs> so, yeah. And some, I, and some people that's their attitude because they understand that they need assistance or they need help or they have some type of, uh, you know, chronic or ongoing condition. Um, you have, you know, with people who are clinically depressed, uh, those who are on medication, you know, they probably keep in constant contact with their provider. Um, but the overall thing in terms of being able to assess that is possibly like with depression, uh, clinical depression is often uh, the markers are, People not being able to to get up out of bed, uh, uh, interfering with daily living things such as eating uh, properly, getting up and and accomplishing things, finishing tasks, uh, responding to people, you know, and feeling extreme low energy and a general feeling of sadness uh, that comes over you and you feel unable to function. You know, that's when you um, 
possibly are having, um, uh, you know, uh, clinical depression and you need to seek out a psychiatrist in this case um, to get some type of uh, uh, assessment to see whether or not you are eligible for that. All right, we're coming up on a break. You got to check the traffic and weather in our different cities. When we come back, though, uh, if if you're just feeling the blues, you know, every every now and then, I guess everybody goes through. You feel a little lower than you know. You just turn around and pick yourself up. But should you see a psychologist, a psychiatrist? How do you determine when when it's clinical, when it's just a you know one day or two days? You feel like everything's going against you, and then you bounce back. So how do you how do you determine whether let me call my psychiatrist, let me call my psychologist? Because that's the decision you're going to have to make as, as individually. So how do you make that decision? When do you when do you make that phone call? I guess that's my question. I'll let you explain that when we get back, folks. We got to check the traffic and weather for our morning commuters right here. Be back in four minutes at thirteen fourteen now after the top of the hour, right here in Baltimore on ten ten W O L B, and also in the DMV we're on FM ninety five point nine. And AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. 20 minutes away from the top there with our guest uh, psychologist, Dr. Denise Wright. Before I left, I asked her a question, but I'm going to frame it this way because we, we got a, a tweet from John in Oakland, California. And John says, Ask your guest to, to define clinical depression or major depression if there's a difference or are they the same thing? Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Have we, have we lost Dr. Wright, Karen? Hopefully we haven't lost Dr. Wright. <laughs> I hope you, yeah, yeah, I hope she has a mute, mute, put her, have her phone on mute because this is the serious discussion right here, folks. It, you know, I find out too why people call them shrinks and, and if they find out that you need to speak to a shrink, why is such a, a taboo issue in, in our community? Why, you know, this discussion of you need to speak to somebody and, and, it, and it's beneficial, as I mentioned before the break, uh, uh, Judge Lynn Tolliver from the divorce court. She mentions all the time. She says, I, I've got my, she calls a shrink too. I got my shrink on speed dial. I, whenever I feel I need to talk to somebody because certain things that you, you can't talk with family, can't talk with friends. You got to find somebody else who you can have this conversation with. And, and, you know, and, and that you, you've got, and then again, on top of that, you've got to respect their decisions, decisions, what they're going to tell you. Cause uh, you know, you can talk to anybody and people can tell you anything, but do you respect what they got, what they say? So that's why you have to talk to a professional that's what Dr. Wright is. And, and uh, so a little different from what uh, Dr. Wilson, Dr. Wilson is psychiatrist, which she mentioned they, they have the ability and the authority to, uh, to, to, um, oh, she's texting me a message here. Uh, I think a, a line dropped, Kevin. Can you call her back? 
texting me and asking me what happened. So, and that's the difference that they can, you know, administer the medication, and it's a whole different area. But when Dr. Wright gets back, though, uh, we'll, we'll ask her the question from uh, our, uh, one of our listeners I mentioned in Go Oakland, California, to define clinical depression or major depression if there's a difference or basically are the same thing. And and, and it's still the taboo in, in our community to have to even talk to a professional or, or a counselor when, when you have issues. Because, you know, I know we're, we're private people. We don't everybody know you in your business. It's not a couch and telling people your private business. Dr. Wright, good morning back again. Uh, sorry for dropping yeah, your yeah. call. But, uh -huh. uh, the, uh, yeah, the question, we got, we got a tweet from one of our listeners out in Oakland, and he says, ask your guest to define clinical depression or major depression. He wants to know, is there a difference or are, are they the same thing? Basically, they're the same thing. You know, you yeah, it's made, yeah, clinical depression, major depression. Um, that's basically the same thing. So let me let me uh, kind of make some di differentiation because you were asking about uh, presenting certain symptoms. So when we look at you know acute versus chronic, which is basically the by purification of that. You know your chronic um, your acute situation is basically something that you know you will feel for a short period of time, maybe over a period of a week. Uh, no more than a month in terms of uh, feeling a certain way, um, feeling slightly depressed or feeling anxious or whatever. And it's usually in response to something that, you know, that's been identified in terms of like having some type of, uh, you know, conflict or, or being, you know, bullied at your job or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. So something that you can identify and you could possibly, you know, check in with somebody. Uh, a lot of black people are faith-based, so they might talk to someone at their church or talk to, uh, you know, confide in a friend and, or journal about it or whatever. And they meet, they feel some alleviation of some of the symptoms of anxiety. But once that crosses the threshold and it's persistent, when we're dealing with something like what we call, you know, which we're well aware of as trauma, which black people experience all the time in this country uh, in some form or the other, you begin to have um, symptoms where it kind of interferes with your uh, daily living and your overall functioning. You may, you know, start forgetting things. You may uh, feel more tight and anxious. You may have sleep disruptions, those kinds of things. And that's when you really need to seek out help in order to figure out you know, what is happening. The other thing is, is that on the developmental uh, uh, scale, you know, a lot of things that we experience uh, through childhood, you know, live with us through adulthood. And a lot of times when we experience trauma, particularly when young, or we have some type of um, experiences where we've been emotionally abused uh, in some way or the other, you know, these things start cropping up as we become adults and they begin to form you know, how we see our world and our relationships. And, you know, that's something intuitively that we need to kind of monitor with regard to ourselves in order to figure out whether or not we need to, you know, go talk to someone or seek some type of counsel. So, again, we're talking about acute versus chronic. And like I said, the chronic situation is, is persistent. It's beyond a month. It turns into a year or what have you. So that's when you really need to seek help. 
So if you're feeling uh, the blues, as, as as I call it, for like you get up and you, you're taking a lot of L's and just everything just against you. You're just, oh, man, I lost that one. Oh, man. Oh, everybody. And you feel like you want to go home and just go to bed and start again. That's that's not a major problem. Am I correct no, in saying that? No, it's not a major that? problem. No, Mm-mm. no, it's not a major problem. And a lot of times, you know, a lot of us, we just don't engage in self-care. And we have to look and be in present and think about the narrative that we have. You know, you could be bummed out about something, about your job or something that happened with you and a friend or your relationships or what have you. You can be bummed out about it, but if it's going to inadvertently affect whether or not you're going to get up for the next five days or whatever, then we're talking about a real situation. Yeah, and this begs the question now. Now, uh, Dr. Wright, uh, you know, pouring your heart out to somebody, your, your personal your insecurities, you know, then you think, wow, what if, what if this person knows this person or knows my friend and is going to uh, put my business in the street? How do you handle that? Well, the thing is, is that hopefully, you know, sometimes you don't know. Sometimes you take a risk. And sometimes people feel better talking to somebody that they really don't know because they don't want to risk having somebody, you know, coming back or throwing something back in their face with regard to, you know, what they told them or whatever, you know. So that's why sometimes it's good to have a confidant or you might, you know, like I said, uh, black folks are faith-based. A lot of people go to, you know, through their uh, church for counsel or whatever and just, you know, not feeling that, you know, that's the, you know, feeling that's the best way to handle it. Because they don't want to, they don't want to have that situation where somebody's going to put their information out. You know, when, when some people feel feeling down or feel the blues or bummed out, as you mentioned, they, you know, they'll go home and put on some music, their favorite music. Some people self-medicate, get a glass of wine yeah. or, or some other <laughs> kind of medication. Uh, what, what would you prescribe if, if it's a short lived where it's not that, you know, it's it's not chronic? Where it's just, you know, you just bummed out just for a day, just kind of blue for the day. We, you suggest, what was your suggestion? You just go to bed and wake up again and, and start again? Or should you, you well, know, I mean, well, place I mean, Basically, my thing is always, you know, like I said, self-care, being kind to yourself, really evaluating the situation and saying, is this the end of the earth for me? I mean, is this, is this thing such a big impact that it's, you know, it's going to be, it's just, it's all or nothing kind of proposition. And a lot of times it's, it isn't. So it's a lot of thing of just sitting there being present and really evaluating the situation and deciding in an optimistic sense to move on. And then, you know, engaging in self-care um, in terms of like eating your favorite food or, you know, taking a nice long bath or whatever, or chatting it up with, you know, one of the, you know, your close friends or, you know, someone that you that trust, an elder, one of your, you know, your your parents or your grand somebody, you know, you can just you just talk to and stuff. And a lot of times people just feel better and they reevaluate where they are and they move on. You know, so that that's that's my that's my prescription for that. All right, 30 at the top of that. Let me ask you this then. Should you ev- try to evaluate yourself? Because then you start thinking, and oh, it's going this way. It's because of this, or I did this wrong. Or should you just try to just blanket out your mind and just move on? Which is the better one? Yeah, but it all depends on what, what situation it is, Carl. It's like it's not, it's not so cookie cutter. I mean, we, you know, a, a lot of times people know when something is really off. I mean, they, they can choose to ignore it. 
or they can choose to try to do something about it. So if you monitor what you're doing, if you're in, if you're if you're in the present, if you're really you know like saying, well, you know, I haven't done this before. This is kind of off, or why am I starting to you know starting to forget things, or this is kind of strange and stuff. When you kind of monitor and you see that. That's when you really, really pay attention and determine whether or not, you know, okay, well, maybe I need to go check this out. All you right. know, a lot uh, of the other, go ahead. No, I was going to say that there's, there's still a stigma. And, and if you can tell us why, you know, people call you guys shrink, and I'm not sure if that's a pejorative. You could explain that for us as well, if, if if that's a negative when people call you a shrink. Uh, but there's still still a stigma attached to it because you know our our, our in our community we we're not that trustworthy when it comes to doctors because for all the, for the history of what we've gone through with doctors, even black right. doctors. So how do how do we clear that hurdle? Well, one of the like I said, we talked about at the top of the hour, talking you know just basically understanding the history. And being able to to have resources where you can seek out a black practitioner, you know, because the American Psychological Association, they admitted that they were racist. You know, they 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 knew that they were all part of the whole thing in terms of promoting, you know, pathology and inequity, you know, among, you know, black folks and and how people were diagnosed and. And all of that, I mean, just it's just been a long, long trying history of just trying to get general uh, respect and, and support while living in this country. So at the end of the day, you, you know, it's the thing of seeking out folks who can really recognize and understand particularly, you know, race-related trauma or the kind of uh, uh, challenges that we have living in this country. Um, so, that, you know, that's one of the things in terms of uh, having more representation in the field and being able to access those people. So, yeah, people are not going to jump up and say, oh, I'm going to go to go see, a, a you know, a shrink, as you say, or uh, a counselor or a mental health. So I got to go talk to somebody, you know. So it's good when you know the resources are there and it's good to know that people are uh, available to assist you. But like I said, the pool is small. You know, the pool is small. Over 16 million African-Americans identified having some mental health issue within the past year. You know, so it's, it's a thing of whether or not those people get support or they go get the, uh, the type of help that they need. Once they go, oftentimes they're misdiagnosed. They don't get the proper treatment. There's over... Over 80%, I was reading one study, over 80% of people with mental illness who are black are in jail, okay? Wow. They're, they're not getting adequate support and care. So it's just been a real, real challenge, and you, you're, you're, you're caught between a rock and a hard place. You don't want to come out to, you know, talk to your family and stuff because you, you're concerned about what's going on, but then you can't, you know, it's hard or a challenge to find, particularly those on college campuses. You don't go to HBCUs. You may not be able to find a counselor because the majority of counselors on the other campuses are, are, are white. So you're going to like really maybe challenge to even find somebody who who you can even talk to. You know, if you go uh, if you're on another you know another campus or you know you go to uh, certain colleges. So uh, it, 
Actually, well, hold that thought right there, because we're going to go a little deeper than college. Let's, let's go to the high school and, and, and uh, students, young people, young black children, because some right. people are saying there's an uptick of those young black children need to see a counselor. And I want to find out if you're seeing an uptick in that, and if so, what is the reason? Okay. But I'll let you explain that to us after we get caught up in the latest news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. We're 26 minutes away from the top there. I'll be back in four minutes. You got a question for Dr. Wright? You, you can use a different name, a different city, but take advantage of her expertise folks reach out to us right here at 800-450-7876 we'll be back later in four minutes right here in baltimore on 1010 wolb in the dmv we're on fm 95.9 and am 1450 wol where information is power Good morning again, family. Happy Thursday to you. 19 minutes away from the top of the hour on this 21st day of September with Dr. Denise Wright. She's a psychologist and we're discussing the mental issue, mental health issues and why the problem in the black community There's a stigma when if you have an issue that you need to speak to somebody. Before we go back to that, let me just remind you, coming up later this morning, we're going to speak with uh, Chairman uh, Fred Hampton. Also, be, uh, before we speak to the Chairman, Amandi from the legendary Watts Prophets will be here. He's going to explain the difference between hip-hop and rap. Also, tomorrow Friday, and we'll give you another chance to free your mind and think for yourself and join us on our Open Phone Friday program. We begin promptly at 6 a.m. right here, Eastern Time, in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. And Dr. Wright, before we left for the... uh, uh, left for the uh, news, traffic, and weather update. The question to you: Are you seeing more young people? Because people will say that young people, especially you know, five, six-year-olds, eight-year-olds, ten, even twelve-year-olds, shouldn't have a need to to see a counselor. What say you? Well, yeah, we've seen a, 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 a an increase of issues among um, black youth uh, in the schools. Um, and uh, in general, there's been more uh, attempts at suicide uh, among youth under the age of 18. Uh, there's been a rise uh, among females, of, um, of black females, in terms of attempted suicide. Um, there's been uh, a lot of issues with regard to social media, um, impulse control, um, affecting a developmental course in terms of exposure with regard to engaging in, in, in um, social media, uh, screen time, all of those things inadvertently affect uh, the general mental health of our younger population. And that's something that really, really, really needs to be uh, looked at. Uh, the other thing is in terms of the diagnosis, you know, they had the ADHD and putting children um, on certain types of medication, uh, medications in order to increase their focus and, and all of that. Um, there's been a lot of controversy around that. For me in particular, I don't know about adequate assessments and an ongoing assessment to determine exactly where a child is, but that's just like a whole other program uh, in terms of doing assessments. But yeah, that's that's what we're having right now. So it's it's been a a clear increase in, in terms of the problems. And the other thing is the the infrastructure. You know, the support that's offered in uh, your respective urban schools for uh, mental health, for um, you know having adequate counselors. Um, 
uh, that's been an issue, along with, you know, just general uh, resources for just health care, which often go hand in hand. Your, your, your mental health and your physical health and your spiritual health are all inextricably woven together. And it's really important to look at the whole, uh, the whole thing from a holistic perspective in terms of uh, general care. So uh, that's what we've been seeing. Well, let me ask you this, uh, Dr. Wright. You know, people listening and say, well, an eight-year-old it, it's not, doesn't have a job, doesn't have to have a job, it doesn't pay rent, it doesn't have to figure out how, what his next meal is, it's taken care of. So eight-year-old, what kind of issues would an eight-year-old have? Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20-milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, Ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. It all depends on what's going on with the child. You know, a lot of kids, like I said, via social media are ex- exposed to a lot of different things. It causes a lot of angst. Um, kids are not properly monitored and with regard to their screen time. A lot of it has to do in terms of the way that they're raised, if they're being abused. Um, you know, they could be emotionally abused, psychologically abused, sexually abused. You know, these are some of the things that can be happening. So when you have a child is presenting with certain types of behaviors or they're, you know, ongoing, you know, uh, tantrums or screaming or and hollering or, you know, can't sit still or, you know, just an, a number of things where it just doesn't fall within normal range, then those are the things that need to be investigated. But 15 away from the top of that, but sometimes the children are just hyperactive. They just, you know, they eat some candy and they're just climbing the walls. Uh, how do you decide whether they're just hyperactive or, or they really have a serious clinical issue? Right. So, you know, so again, here comes the assessment part. So one of the things is general observation, which needs to happen over uh, two or three or four observations. That's number one. Number two, there are assessments like for ADHD that you that you utilize. Number three, a lot of kids are not getting adequate nutrition. When you don't get adequate nutrition, it affects the way that you present. So if you're eating a lot of processed foods and you're eating a lot of sugar and you're eating a lot of synthetic foods, you are, it's, you're, it's going to show. It's going to affect your, your general behavior. So there's, there's a lot of different things here that need to be looked at, but a lot of times they're not. Um, you know, for example, there's a, I know there was one kid, he had symptoms. Uh, he, had, he presented with, with markers of dyslexia. But he was like, you know, 15, and I said, well, we need to get him tested. I said, well, we don't test after a certain age for dyslexia. I'm like, so when, so when are we going to be able to find out if he has dyslexia? Maybe that's one of the reasons why he's acting out. Maybe that's one of the reasons why he's not reading like he should. You know, you have to do a thorough examination and assessment of what's going on with these kids. And oftentimes they, they don't have it. So that, that's a big problem. 
But you also mentioned there's a shortage of, of black uh, counselors, of, uh, black psychologists like yourself, especially treating mm. our children. Could be, is that a major problem? Some of them would just okay, uh, you know, send him over there and right. give him some drugs so we can calm down, or or right. I'm scared and I don't want to deal with him. Right, it is a major problem, and a lot of times, I mean, I'm gonna be quite honest with you. A lot of times for me, it's like if I get if I get a kid that's already been seen. Or I'll go over the record and stuff, and I'll look in what's the record, and I'll look at the kid, and I'll do an assessment. I'm like, well, I'm not really seeing this, or what's going on with that? So what I'm saying to you is, like, a lot of times our children are misdiagnosed or they're underdiagnosed or they're not receiving the type of treatment that they need for proper intervention. And so yeah, that's, that's an issue. And historically, like I said before, all black people were psychotic, so we were – we were all schizophrenic. Um, now we're all, you know, by that bipolar disorder, you know. I mean, it's just always been a situation where, um, you know, having not having, you know, a, a, a real diagnosis in terms of being able to get proper treatment to to resolve some of these issues. So that that's a big that's been a big problem historically. All right, let me ask you this then. If if they attended like a Pan-African school, if they were taught who they were, would that make it, do you think that would make a difference? Would, would they, it would absolve them from having to see a person like yourself if they were embedded with, you know, history, their own history then? Well, yeah, I mean, basically when we see, you know, studies indicate that, you know, when a child um, understands who they are, they have a sense of their own identity, you know, and they have that type of um, support academically as well as, you know, affirmation from their family unit and, or, you know, their elders, then they, they have a more uh, stable type of perspective. They're, you know, they have a different lens of the world uh, because they understand who they are. You know, people with a stronger sense of identity have a, have a, a correlates with a, you know, a higher sense of confidence and, 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 and introspection and, and problem solving across the board, it, it really, really affects, you know, how you, how you carry yourself in the world. And so those kids really utilize, um, you know, have that type of, I call it a leg up in terms of, you know, just general education, their attitudes towards education, their attitudes towards their social relationships. You know, it's a, it's a different type of thing. Well, turn away from the top. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Wright, if you look across the board, which group, is there any group that needs has, has mental health issues more than any other group? Or, we, or does Blacks, Asians, Hispanics, no, we Whites? Are, or? Blacks, all of us, all of us need it. But, you know, my concern is for the, the, um, the younger kids, you know, 25 and under right now who are have been swamped with, um, you know, social media, have been um, extended by COVID, um, dealing with um, a lot of things with regard to just uh, the disintegration of the family unit, you know, as we used to know it, um, having a sense of balance, not being concerned about what's going on, um, all the things that are going on in terms of just the general uh, intensity of conflict, um, shootings, all those things, they, they really affect um, the kids. I mean, the community in general, but the kids really, it really, really affects them. So as a parent who is listening or a grandparent who is listening, is there anything they can do? 
how can they spot that? How can they identify that, you know, you know, maybe my child needs to speak to a counselor or maybe I should go to a counselor and speak to the counselor for, on his behalf? Are there, are there any uh, markers that they should look for? Well, markers in terms of like changes in behavior, that's the big thing. Um, changes in behavior, not wanting to communicate. Uh, basically, their eyes are cast down, um, you know, maybe slow walking, maybe not saying much, avoidance issues not really easy, eating, loss of appetite, that kind of thing, shutting themselves in the room, not coming out, not interacting, not responding, you know, that kind of thing. So looking at different um, things in terms of their just differences in behavior, a market difference in behavior. So that's when you really have to kind of reach in and, and ask, if, you know, what's going on. Always ask, is, are you feeling suicidal? Have you thought about suicide, you know? Sometimes you really have to ask that, those questions. Um, so there's a number of stories I could, you know, possibly tell, but we don't have time. With regard to people just not asking the question, and you know, I've seen uh, a number of, uh, I've known of a number of issues or instances where people have taken their lives. Oh wow! Under the age of uh, 18, yeah. Under the age of eighteen, and, and all because mm-hmm. you didn't ask. Because you know, as a parent, you you probably feel well. They're going through that that, that you know the hormone period. You know, as youngsters and teenagers go through, trying to find whether they're still a child or whether they're an adult, and trying to figure out where they figure out in life. And, and you probably just chalk it up to that. They said, you know, after a while, they go, go through it. Those teenage years. So how do you know that it's not just that, and, and it's something more? That's why you need to check in with the kids. That's why you need to always be open. Uh, you know, the kids are talking, you know, if the child is talking to you or whatever, try not to be judgmental. Always ask more questions. Ask them why they feel that way. You know, that kind of ha- thing, having a supportive uh, type of uh, exchange, you know, with the child. You know, knowing that, you know, saying your door is open, I'm open, you know, you can come and talk to me. You know, just the child feeling like they can approach someone, you know, and, uh, you know, the elder or your parent or someone that they can, they feel that they can trust. Because one of the things that uh, a lot of when I was working in the high schools, one of the biggest complaints among among the students was that the adults don't listen. So that's what, like the biggest complaint. Like they they don't feel like they're being heard. So that that wow. that that was one of the major complaints that they have. All right, tell you what, we got to step aside. We got to get caught up in the traffic and weather update, and also news in Baltimore. But uh, John in Oakland, it's a follow up question for you, and I'll, I'll read it for you, and you can respond to me when we get back. John says, "Ask your guest how would." major depression or clinical depression manifests itself. He wants to know how it would show up. So I'll let you respond to that after we check the traffic and weather in our different cities. Folks, six minutes away from the top. I'll be back in four minutes uh, with Dr. Wright right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, or information is power. Good morning again, family. A minute after the top there, momentarily we'll be speaking with Brother Amande from the legendary Watts Prophets. Right now we're with Dr. Denise Wright. She's a psychologist. And before we left, though, I mentioned that John, who had tweeted a question back from Oakland, who's listening in Oakland, and he's had a follow-up for you, uh, uh, Dr. Wright. He says, ask your guest, how would major 
depression or clinical depression manifest itself? And he added, or is it environmental? Please explain. Right. So depression overall is a, a mood disorder. And it is uh, something that usually requires, a, it usually can be genetic. Um, it can run in families. And the medication is oftentimes used um, in terms of alleviating antidepressants are oftentimes um, uh, prescribed for that uh, based on, you know, the extent uh, uh, of the depression. Um, in terms of being external or environmental, I mean, in terms of like dealing with the all things in terms of the systemic racism can exacerbate any type of um, uh, uh, latent uh, uh, propensity to be depressed. So we may carry some of those genes, but it may be exacerbated by, you know, how we live and what we're exposed to. But the symptoms are, are persistent and they've gone for an extended period of time. This is like a chronic thing. So it's always like feelings of sadness and cheerfulness or emptiness or hopelessness, angry outbursts or loss of interest, sleep disturbances like I was talking about before. You know, the lack of energy, reduced appetite and weight loss, you know, just overall anxiety, feelings of worthlessness, and trouble thinking or remembering things. So these are some of the markers, you know, for clinical depression. If it's ongoing and stuff, that's when you seek a, a, mental, a mental health provider, uh, particularly a psychiatrist, to, see, to evaluate to see if you can respond to medication. The other thing I also do is also recommend in terms of, tweaking your sleep cycle in terms of making sure you get adequate sleep because, you know, we talked about that, Carl, and also in terms of how you're eating and what you're putting into your body, you know, eating whole foods and just trying to live basically, you know, cleaning up, you know, and, and also the drinking, you know, drinking because substance oftentimes exacerbates um, any latent issues with depression. You know what? We, we talked about last time about the sleep deprivation, uh, I got to right. ask you this. How many hours, for the folks who didn't hear that conversation, how many hours should one sleep each night? Well, basically, people are on different, have different biorhythms, but for the most part, the average is seven to seven and a half hours uh, for most people. And, the, and when you wake up in the morning, you feel like you've slept, you have restorative sleep. So you wake up, you're not groggy, you're not, you know, stumbling, you're not running to get the coffee and stuff. You wake up and you feel somewhat refreshed, like you're coherent, and you can go through your day. You're ready to start your day. So, you know, that's the difference between, and it's also the quality of sleep. It's not, you know, it's not always, you know, the length. It's the quality of sleep that you get. So that's really, really important. Yeah, and the, uh, you mentioned quality. How do you determine the quality, though? <laughs> I mean, can you can you decide that? I'm, I'm, yeah. Go ahead. No, when you get ready to go to bed, how can you can you can you can you make it that you're going to get that quality that you that level that deep sleep that you that you're referring to? How can you what how can you do that? Or is it you just take a chance and fall down and hope you fall asleep? Well, no. Well, basically, you know, it's it's basically evaluating what's going to because I always ask people, you know, what does your bedroom look like? Is it clear and free of debris? Do you have blackout curtains? Do you have light coming in? You know, that kind of thing. Is your room cool enough? Or do you have the TV on while you go to sleep? Making sure you change your sheets. You, you know, your bed is clean. Making sure that you feel comfortable, you know, in your bed because sometimes people need a new mattress because it's sagging in the middle or whatever. They need a new mattress. 
or they need new pillows because they've had them for over a year. You know, so it's the thing of like making sure that you make sure your bed is is is, is nice and clean. Make sure your mattress is is, uh, is you know supports your you and your weight, as well as you know making sure that you change out your mattresses, all those things, and then going and then doing like I said, uh, self care kind of stuff. Sometimes it's taking a long bath, you know, and being able to relax um, with that. And then basically, I also ask people to the journal uh, just a couple of two or three hours before they go to bed so they can put their concerns or their fears or whatever on a sheet of paper and be able to go to bed and try to go to bed with a clean slate. So that kind of thing. And then there's other things that you can also do um, if you're having issues with insomnia. Um, some people um, take CBD. Some people take teas, you know, before they go to bed, like chamomile or what have you. Or they eat cherries. That's also a good thing for, um, you know, promoting things. Or tryptophan, something like a tiny piece of, you know, chicken or turkey or something like that to kind of help you go to sleep. Oh, wow. we we got to discuss this later on, uh, uh, Dr. Wright. Before we let you go, though, because you co-authored a book with about Dr. Wilson. Is that book still out? Yeah, the book is still out. It's at the Black Classic Press. It's also on Amazon. Um, co-editor with uh, Raymond Wimbush. Um, it's called the Osiris Papers. Then um, we talk about uh, different authors are in there, um, notables um, such as Jeremiah Wright and others who have written there, uh, looked at the different indices of white supremacy as outlined by Dr. Frances Cress Welsing. And um, for me, I always look at her, I used to call her Miss Frances, but, you know, once I understood about the global nature of white supremacy, I think. I understood more so, you know, how to show up in the world. And it gave me a sense of uh, direction in terms of uh, my purpose in life and and also in terms of how to educate, you know, my students. So um, it, it, it's the thing, yes. But the book is still out. Um, we published back in 19 um, and back in uh, 2019. Um, and this was like um, maybe, I don't know, seven or eight months before the pandemic started. So, right. It's yeah. a good read, folks. The title, one more yeah. time, Dr. Wright. The Osiris Papers. O-S-I-R-I-S Papers, which is right. the sequel uh, to the ISIS Papers. Yes, it is. It's a great book. Uh, before we let you go, how can folks reach you? Are you on social media? Well, yeah, I'm Email. on Facebook. I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn. Um and uh, yeah, so and I have a small private practice. So if people are interested, uh, they can sign up um, or contact me through Facebook or LinkedIn. All right. Thanks, Dr. Wright. All right. Well, thank you, Carl. I'll be talking to you again soon. All right. It will do. As Dr. Denise right. Wright, folks, she's a okay. psychologist. Uh, uh, 800-450-7876 on the 21st day of September. Brother Amde is joining us from the legendary Watts Prophets. Brother Amde, good morning. Good morning. How are you feeling? Excellent, brother. How about yourself? I'm excellent, too. 
Uh, good to hear that. Uh, let's talk some music, man. You know, the, today is uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire Day for many folks because of the 21st day of September. People are celebrating the elements, and that record is going to be in your ear for quite those of you listening to have earworm. You know what that is. There are records, uh, parts of a record stick in your ear all day long in your head, and it's playing over and over. Well, that's what could probably happen with a lot of people on this 21st day of September. But I want to talk to you because you you were the forerunners. Your group, the Watch Prophets, along with the last poets, Gil Scott Heron, the forerunners of, of what was known as hip-hop and somehow transferred into to rap. But you say that there's, uh, first of all, you guys, when you started, you, you, were, you, were, you were the ones who were doing the rap. You, you were talking. Uh, how did that come about? How did, you we weren't necessarily called musicians at the time, but you guys were talking over, over, over music. How did that come about? After the, <clears throat> after the Watts riots, the people in Watts had no area of expression. All across America, we had no area of expression. And, and we had freed ourselves physically, but we had never really freed the word. But <clears throat> after the 1965 riots, a white man by the name of Bud Schuberg, who made the movie On the Waterfront, came to Watts and opened a place called the Watts Writers Workshop. I'm going to move quickly through this history call, so I'm going to be a talk about it. So he came to the, and he started the Watts Writers Workshop. To make a long story short, the Watts Writers Workshop was burned down by the FBI. They burned it to the ground in the early 70s. Uh, so I, I, coming out of that Watts Writers Workshop came the Watts Prophets. But the Watts Prophets, <laughs> were, were the Watts Prophets, for those of you who don't know, because we've kind of been written out of history, the Watts Prophets was the first to call rap a fine art form in the same creative path as jazz. We were street poets in all tradition. I'm not a linguist. I'm just telling our story of how rap came about. First of all, hip-hop is a culture. It's not an art form. Rap is an art form. And in the literary vein, uh, uh, hip hop is pop art, and I don't know if you all know the definition of pop art. Who was? It came about from an English man by the name of Richard ha Richard Hamilton. And pop art, the definition of it is popular, transient, expendable, low cost. Mass-produced, young, witty, sexy, gimmickry, glamorous, and big business. That's the definition of pop art. Well, let me go now to where rap came from. It has a history. Wherever jazz is, there was rap. But let's start it from the beginning. When we arrived in America on the plantations, there might have been four or five different intact African languages, plus the slave owner's language, French, English, etc. We had to matriculate through all of this. We didn't even understand each other. Being that most, language, most of the languages were Bantu-based, there were some common denominator words in most of the languages. We begin to take these and begin to construct a new, ever-evolving language mixed with English. 
this language started mixed with deceit uh, as it was being constructed. Like we say, uh, that's sick, and we really mean that's good. Well, that's the kind of deceit. It allowed us to talk around the slave master without him understanding. Words like jazz, boogie-woogie, jamboree, jive, mumbo-jumbo, big mouth, gumbo, jukebox, gorilla, elephant. All of those are African words. There are thousands of them mixed with English. With the English uh, uh, well, hold, hold that thought right there, Brother Amde. we got to take a short break here. Folks, you're getting an education on music. Uh, it all started because, you know, some people are saying that uh, rap and hip-hop has started in the Bronx, but apparently listening from Brother Amde started when uh, on the shores of the continent. What are your thoughts? You got questions for him? Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. We've got to check the traffic and weather in our different cities. We'll be back in four minutes with Brother Amde and your questions right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. Good morning again, family. 20 minutes after the top of the hour with our guest, Amande Hamilton. Amande is uh, is uh, one of the members of the legendary Watts Prophecy. He's the forerunners of what we know today as rap and hip-hop. So he's giving us some history, some background on how it all started. So, Brother Amande, uh, I'm going to let you continue. Okay, as I said, just all the words like elephant, cola, banana, okra, yam, and the word rapper, direct directly connected to West and Central African terminology. This ever-evolving language continued to grow amongst the field slaves. It did not show itself to the academic world until a poet by the name of Paul Lawrence Dunbar. In his poems, media and rhyme like rappers of today, poems like When Melinda Sings and others, Dunbar was known as the people's poet. His poetry grew from his environment. The linguists of the time did not want to hear his wonderful contemporary poetry. They wanted that dialect, that rhythm and rhyme, and something called that call and sometime call and response. The linguists knew it was a new evolving language, but the people did not. After Paul Lonsport Dunbar died, this evol- ever evolving language continued to evolve in our community amongst the street people. And wherever jazz was being played, that's where all the hip talk was being talked. In the sermons and pool halls and juke joints and wherever jazz was being played, that hip talk continued to evolve. Not unnoticed by the government, Diego Hoover had jazz musicians investigated. He thought they were talking another language. In the academic world, it raised its head with poets like Langston Hughes, who was always around jazz musicians like Monk. In 1958, Charlie Mingus made an album with uh, that hip talk with Langston Hughes using street jargon. He often worked with jazz groups. Zora Neale Hurston and James Baldwin both said this street talk was a new language. Then you had poets like Baraka, who beat on podiums like rappers today, beat on tables with jazz playing. He talked about poetry and jazz in his writing. That was the academic world. In the streets, it was evolving in sermons, in the oral music, in the everyday conversation. Among cats like Louis Armstrong on the West Coast, in, in the form of scatting, Ella was scatting wherever there was jazz. 
There was talk, that hip talk, evolving daily. Wherever there were African-American street people, it was evolving. Malcolm was the first one to come from the streets rapping. For street people, they were, it's just for street people, they were others. But Malcolm touched the hearts of the street people with his beautiful prose, a ballad of the bullet, message to the grassroots, by any means necessary. He, to us street people, could really rap. In my street environment, there were two leaders, King and Malcolm. The King people would be rushing to a King rally and see us standing on the corner in front of the pool hall and cross the street, trying to get away from us too. And they were talking about voting and civil rights. No one was speaking about the problems of the street people, the convicts, the police raping the whores, killing us with police brutality and robbing the bookies and other hustlers, beating us to death in jails where no eyes could see. We knew Malcolm was rapping for us. Even if we wasn't his religion, his experiences was the same as ours. In the streets, cats like Oscar Brown Jr. and Cab Calloway and Louis Jordan, rap was sprinkling our music, gospel, R&B. Rap then again went underground when it, until two, two groups came out, the Last Forts and Watts Prophets, East and West Coast. They called themselves, the, the Last Forts called themselves poets. The Watts Prophets knew we were poets, but we called ourselves rappers. At the same time, Ebonics, or slash rap, was finally recognized as a language in 1970. Dr. Robert Williams and Dr. Ernie Smith uh, were the kind of the, the cats who had that done. The next big explosion on the West Coast was rap. Had a baby called hip-hop. Not hip-hop, had a baby called rap. Easy and the gangster rap began to take off. And uh, that's kind of where it ended up. And uh, then rap was taken over by hip-hop. They took it and put it in a pot and called it MCN or whatever they wanted to call it. But the roots of it, it was a social commentary. And when it became hip-hop, it became something else. It became pop art. And um, that's kind of where I want to stop talking about that and show you that there's a difference in hip-hop and there's and rap. They are two different things. Rap is a right, fine art. Yeah, before, before you do that, before, before you break that down, uh, Norman in Toronto, Canada is listening to us, and he's got a question for you. He's on line two. Norman, yeah. good morning. You're on with uh, Brother Amande. Oh uh, yes, how you doing, sir? Um, I want to ask you about Jane Cortez. Now, Jane Cortez. Went to. Uh, she's from Watts, but she went. I to, didn't mention her name. I didn't mention her name, but she was. I should have, sir. She was part of that. Go ahead. Uh, could, uh, she was married to Arnett Coleman, and her son. Or, uh, I can't. Or, or I can't remember her, her son's name. Her son pay, played with her and uh, played yeah, with her and. You know, Oh, Denardo, I'm sorry. Yeah, Denardo. That's that's that's. that's uh, but I mean, Jane Cortez, she was a. a, a, a she's called. I guess people were, would refer to her as a spoken word artist, but she fused jazz with 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 with, with spoken word or rap. How would you, how would you? Yeah. Her and, and and could you talk about her, 
and I think she was she came she was with Don Cherry as well. They grew up together, I believe. I grew up with all of them, sir. We were all from what? Yes, sir. And Jane Cortez was with, during her time was the hippest thing in Watts. If you wanted to know what was hip, you found Jane Cortez. And uh, even before I should have mentioned it, uh, before the Watts Writers Workshop, Jane Cortez was around the community teaching writing here and there. And so, yes, she was really real hip, bro. And she was a part of this movement. I got to put that in my presentation. But, uh, yeah, she was a big part of it and, and, and taking jazz and the spoken word. But like I said, people be telling me, oh, I heard hip. I heard gospel doing hip. I heard doing rap. I heard that it was, all, it was sprinkled all over. Uh, when I was a kid 84 years ago, the black community was segregated, and it was very poetic. Wherever you went, there was poetry. You might walk in a cafe, and you, you say, hey, how you doing, John? he say, could be better, could be worse. Better be riding an ambulance than a hearse. You would hear stuff like that. Or you walk in the pool hall, and you hear dice be nice. Let me have two till Luke get through. The community had a poetic flair to it when we were segregated. That kind of dispersed as we integrated. You know, integration is the disintegration of those being integrated. I guess I just wanted to say that Jane also... uh, Hello? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I said Jane... Uh, had a home when she passed away. She had a home in Senegal and a home in New York City. She was deep off into the. Uh, uh, she was very uh, into to, to, to Africa, big, big, big time. That's what I'm telling you. She was always avant-garde, man. If you wanted to know what was hip, you found Jane Cortez. If you wanted to find who was the hippest Newton, which is a jazz musician, you found Jane Cortez. She she did her own thing, and uh, I'm, I'm really surprised that I we all from Watson. I didn't have her in here, but she played a major part on the West Coast. You see, rap is regional. Uh, the hip rap in Los in New York is not the hip rap in Los Angeles, nor it's not as the hip rap in uh in in, in Chicago. It, it, it's it's regional, and the history of it is kind of regional. It's sort of like you know, it's 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 many many different little languages came off of this. Just like the basis of the because it come out of Africa. The basis of this is the Bantu language. There are 400 different languages in the Bantu language. So rap is sort of in that same structure, if you look at it in America. But the wonderful thing about rap and hip-hop is, we, as I said, pop art. Uh, the Watts Prophets are, and the Last Poets are a complete success as far as the Watts Prophets and rap because they're rapping all over this earth. And not just in the form that you guys are hearing about booties and, and kill this guy and do whatever they're talking about here in America. The rap freed, it, it came about to open an area of expression for those with no area of expression. And I saw a little 11-year-old boy rapping on the other day uh, from Palestine talking about what it was to be 11 years old and be hearing bombs all night and day. Uh, that he never would have gotten that audience, hadn't he had the art form of rap? And it's like 
America is uh, jazz is one of the only art forms created here, but they're going to have to put rap right side of it too, because it's a fine art form that's being used all over the world that black people aren't even proud of. And it it never was. You know, when we came out rapping, when we came to the academic world, we were never, Watts Prophets were never accepted in the black arts movement. We were always on the fringes because we were like, here come those street ends. And, you know, we wasn't trying to be good English and we wasn't trying to do, and we were talking about different things. So we never were really accepted. You don't hear all of these youngsters that come from the West Coast. The only one that ever came to us and tried to give us a hand was Easy. Not the rest of them, they've all avoided us. I mean, clearly avoided, avoided us. We don't know what, them. The, the last thing I want to say... Norman, go ahead. <laughs> Your follow-up question. Go ahead, because we're coming up on a break. My cousin is Ross Jimmy Hyman out of... Uh, he's, he also I know, Jimmy. I, 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 you interviewed me before me. I remember you. Yes, sir. Yeah. All right. Thank you. All right, You're thanks, welcome. So, Jimmy, and, I said, and, hey... You, you know what, uh, Amde? How do you feel when you see, because you started all this, and you see it's even in, in gospel. We hear a Kirk Franklin song, and we and they played Kirk Franklin. And I remember when Kirk Franklin stopped playing, uh, they, it was being played in the clubs. And this is something that you started. All these people seem like they, they're drinking of the milk that you created. How do you feel about that? Right. So hold the thought right there. Yeah, yeah. Hold the thought right there, Amde, because we got to take a short break. We got to check the news traffic. When we come back, though, explain that how your thoughts about that. Because as I mentioned, you created this. Your group created what we now hear on the radio, and these people they're making millions of dollars behind something that you created. I want to get your thoughts on that. As I mentioned, we got to step aside and get caught up with the latest news, traffic, and weather in our different cities, folks. You want to join this conversation with Brother Amdi from the Watts Prophets? Reach out to us at eight hundred four five zero seventy eight seventy six. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on ten ten W O L B in the DMV. We're on FM ninety five point nine and AM fourteen fifty W O L, where information is power. Good morning again, family. 20 minutes away from the top of the hour. Happy Thursday to you. I guess his brother Amde from the Watts Province, a legendary Watts Province, I should say. Uh, if, if you Today's music, hip-hop, rap, this is where it started. It started on the on the West Coast with the Watts Province, on the East Coast with the Last Poets, and also got to throw in um, got to throw in Gil Scott Herring there as well. Before we go back to him, though, let me just remind you, later this morning, Chairman Fred Hampton is going to join us, and also tomorrow is Friday, when we invite you to free your mind and, and join us for another Open Phone Friday program. We start promptly at 6 a.m. Eastern Time right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right. So I was asking the question, Brother Amde, um, the, the, the fact that you guys started it, they all got a tan off your, your, your shine and you got nothing. Y- your thoughts. One of us died homeless. Uh, it's just, it was just three of us. I'm the only one left. But see, the wise prophets would never be interested in being one, two, or three. We realized we would have a zero way to one come from. We were breeded to be who we were. Like, we had grandmothers like Queen Mother Moore. That's, we were, if you ask Queen Mother Moore how she became who she was, 
she still tells you it was our environment, the Creole environment. And that's the one me and Richard were raised in. Otis came from Alabama. But our grandmothers, see, what people don't know is, or they don't realize is, our grandmothers knew that their grandmothers were raped into existence. And my grandmother never forgot that, and many of the Louisiana grandmothers didn't. And they breeded children like me. I was breeded by my grandmother to be who I am sitting right here today. I didn't figure that out for a long time. But as I began to look at our history and begin to see how she had, what she did with me, I realized that I was breeded to be a poet. And Louisiana Creoles always had great poets. They 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 were the first ones to to uh, have poetry. They had daily newspaper with poetry in it. They published militant poetry that was in French mostly and sent to uh, France. But amongst the poor, uh, there was the oral tradition, which I came out with. The Watts Prophets came out with the oral tradition. It was a part of us. But our environment, the Creole environment, from grandmothers, basically grandmothers. Richard's grandmother did deal, deal with him, and my grandmother dealt with me. And uh, that's why we're the poets we are today. So we wasn't trying to be one, two, or three. We were just trying. We we, 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 we had a cause. We didn't need applause. And, and you know, uh, you mentioned this, the NWA, you mentioned that uh, ECE was the only one that sort of reached out to you out of that group. And we, we had a meeting with them because they were, they were, it was a, a cause of concern, let's say, in Compton. And because they were, they were in talking to the adults and they said, OK, let, let's have a summit at the radio station and discuss it. Why you guys sing the, the stuff that you're doing? Because people feel that you're embarrassing the city and all of this stuff. And, and the mayor was there. Uh, and the, the first time they had a conversation with each other about and they're saying they're just rapping about what's going on in their city. When you started with the with Watts Prophet, was, was that was that a reflection of what was going on in Watts? Was that what you were rapping about? Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. The Watts Prophets, uh, 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 we were addressing the black community. We wasn't thinking about white folks. We wasn't sitting around talking about what white folks did to us. We were talking about them niggas ain't playing. We were talking about high-fidelity niggas. We was all talking about ourselves. We were And uh, the, the first time that I wrote a poem that wasn't talking about African-American was the poem I did at Bob Marley's funeral. It was called Wisdom and Knowledge. And I had a reading at UCLA, and uh, they asked, I didn't have one poem for white folks. And so what I did is I sat down and wrote Wisdom and Knowledge Left Out. 
and I took that to UCLA, and that was the beginning. But the Watts Brothers had so many firsts, man. We was the first one to take poetry in the clubs. Wasn't nobody doing no poetry in clubs. They would throw rocks at you, beers at you, and you should stand up there and do poetry. But John Daniels at Maverick's Flat, which was the uh, Apollo Theater of the West, uh, he really helped us a lot, and uh, we stayed there 18 straight weeks when, with everybody. Earth, wind, and fire, everybody came to Maverick's Flat. So the Wise Brothers were the first on a lot of things, man. And, and as I try to tell people, we are a complete success because people are rapping all over the earth, from China to wherever. You're going to find them rapping. And not in this style. Or this form that you hear here about the girls and the bullets and the kill and everybody is not doing it that way. They're using it for what it was a, a created for, to open an area of expression for those with no area of expression. Uh, can you tell us about how he came about with, with uh, Marley's funeral? Because his music is kind of like what you're talking about, social issues, injustice. Well, uh, you know, he's got some love songs, of course, like like uh, many other singers. But Bob Marley recognized work... the value of rap immediately. How I met Bob Marley is I was studying with the Archbishop of the Western Hemisphere for the Ethiopian Orthodox Church to become a priest. And I would, he'd live, Bob Marley had him housed in a duplex, and Bob was on one side and the bishop lived on the other. So when I would go to Jamaica, I would be living with the bishop. And me and Bob would speak passing. But one day, the bishop had a meeting with Bob. And, uh, and so I'm sitting in the studio with Bob's musicians. So they asked me, what do you do? And I told them I was a poet. And they said, well, uh, do a poem. So I did that poem, Wisdom and Knowledge, the one I did at Bob's funeral. And when I finished the poem, I heard some hand clapping. And it was Bob Marley. I didn't know he was in the booth. And he came out and he said, who are you? Who are you? He said, I've, I've never heard poetry like that. And so I went to the car and I got our book and our first album called Rapping Black in a White World, which is the first album that was ever called rap. And that's where the music industry got the name for the genre, rap music. And I brought that to him. And he went and he took it. And the next day I saw him about noon. We were standing out in the yard. And he came up to me and he said, I stayed up and I listened to your album. And I read your book. And he said, I want to make an album with the Mott's Prophet. And so to make a long story short, that's how I got involved with Bob Marley. And um, he died before we could get the album done, uh, get to even work on it. I could see our name on the list now. But uh, that's how I got involved with him. We were both in the same church. And uh, that uh, Aboni Isak was really like one of his mentors. Oh wow! So that's I never heard that. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I never heard that story before. But uh, your thoughts now on today's music, today's hip hop and rap music, which is it? What are we listening to these days? Uh, I don't really know. I, I I can't understand it. Well, you know, rap is ever evolving, and uh, the hip 
thing that my I would hear, you know, like it goes from generation to generation. Like we would say, call it a pad. The next generation call it a crib. The next generation call it a spot. Well, I don't even know where these kids are with it now. But uh, you see, uh, hip-hop was used to build the prison industrial complex. It did a lot of other things, but that was one of the main things. And uh, I don't want to talk wait, wait, about hold, it. Hold it right there. there. Can, 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 you, can you break that down first? You say it was created to, to help build the prison industrial complex? How so? Yes, yes. Well, you can look at it. When you tell somebody to go shoot somebody, they go into jail. When you tell somebody to do the things that they say do, to use drugs, whatever, and, and many of those things, those are things that fill up jails. And as hip-hop and rap was growing in America, so was the prison industrial complex. Our kids were almost put in uniforms uh, from the very beginning. If you looked at one of the first rap groups, Run DMC, who was a very great group, but it started out in kind of just their picture. You know, things, uh, social engineering is a way out thing. If uh, you remember Run DMC and you look at them, you saw a pair of shoes. Those shoes were untied. Um, uh, well, that was kind of against African-American tradition. That's the last thing I mother the first thing she said, tie your shoes, boy. Well, that was kind of a rebellion thing showing right there. But then uh, the sagging pants, they went on up to that. Uh, they went on up to the tattoos. They went on up to the chain on the neck. They went up to the tattoos on the face and the hat turned sideways or backwards, which made you uh, walk in, uh, in uniform that could be, and, 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 and dress like that. Where would you get a job in America? So, I mean, they made, they created an image, uh, hip hop with social engineering. The social engineering started right after the Watts riots. That's where I really begin to see it really work because they took control of our community and began to redesign it. But uh, that's what happened to, 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 to you know to the whole thing. It, it's been it was socially engineered and it helped build the prison industrial complex. And many say I haven't investigated it. That if you check many of the music industry giants, many of them own stock in the in the, in the, uh, the prisons. The, you know, the private prison. So, um, well, uh, let me jump in and ask you, you know, this, I though, then. It, I, I'll, I'll go with your premise that, that that was created, and as you mentioned, that the dress code is like the brothers who were in the joint. But can we use that to turn it around? Can we use that same social engineering in a positive way for our community? Can that be done yes. with, through the music? Yes, you could if you had control of the music. You have no control of the music. These kids, there's a few millionaires in there mixed in there, but most of them aren't. And if you notice, none of them come to do anything productive in the community. They do little things like give them turkeys on Christmas and, and bring a concert here or there. But, uh, 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 you know, they never build anything. They never build any industry. Uh, you know, it looks like to me they can help their mama, their cousin, and a few other their partners, but they can't go no further than trying to really help our community. A few of them try, but uh, overall, uh, hip hop is not controlled by African Americans. 
It's controlled by the music industry. And that's been for a long time. They created the image. Um, probably the best-known American in the world is Snoop Dogg. African-American. But you know know what, uh, uh, Brother Amdi, if you told Snoop, Jay-Z, or any of these uh, out there, top of the game right now in the hip-hop game, and you tell them that they're being controlled, they say you're lying. So, no, I I'm, I make all, all my moves. I, I make all my decisions. And I let you, I'm looking at the clock here. We've got to take a quick break. So when we come back, I'll let you respond to that. But if you talk to Snoop or, or JC or any of those guys, who, as I mentioned, top of the game, and you tell, tell them and uh, that they are being controlled by the music industry, by someone in the music industry, they're going to tell you that you're a liar. So I, I wonder, what would your response be? How would you prove to them that they are being controlled? Folks, you want to join this conversation, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Six away from the top of the hour. We've got to check the news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. We're back in four minutes, though, with uh, Amde from the legendary Watts Profits right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. Hey, good morning again, family. Our guest is Brother Amde from the legendary Watts Prophets. This was his music and their music, like the last poets on the East Coast, the Watts Prophets on the West Coast. Of course, they were, they were the forerunners of what we know today as hip-hop and rap. Before we left for the traffic and weather update, my question to him is, told any of these, these giants in the rap game today that they're being controlled and that, that somebody else is calling the shots, and they would say, hey, man, you're lying. That's not so. So, Brother Amde, what would you say to them when they respond like that? I wouldn't say anything to them, me personally, because uh, I, 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 I never, uh, I guess I have a line in one of my poems, I never be the satellite of others' realities. And if that's their reality, that's their reality. But I've been in this business since it started. I watched this whole industry grow. And... Uh, I have my own realities about where it's at and how it's being controlled. I know it's controlled, and if they don't understand that, then that's their problem. But, uh, you know, I'm not mad at them. They, they, I guess they fulfilled their goals. They wanted money and fame and all of that, and that's what they got. The Watts Prophets had a social commentary, and uh, I think we have been very successful. At that, I wouldn't have anything to say to them. I wouldn't argue with them. They have a right to believe as they believe. All right. All right. Two at the top there. Tyrone's calling us from Baltimore. He's on line two. Tyrone, you're on with Brother Amde. Yeah, um, uh, Brother Amde, I, I have to agree with you 100%. Um, the, 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 what you're saying is, is quite, it's, it's hard and it's complex, too complex for the average person a lot of times to, to get the fact that, that um, the rap of, the, you know, the, the um, the last prophets was my my big brother just play all the time, and my my parents would tell him you can't play that in here because of the profanity. But it was a lot of positive gifts in that music. That's, but the social engineering is so sophisticated. They've taken rap, which used oh, yeah. to be a tool of liberation, and converted it into a tool of oppression. If you look at all the, the top rappers, Snoop Dogg, Jay Z, and uh, Tupac, they all sell they all sold drugs. Okay, so people are looking at this. Young people are looking at this. Man, think about this. You see a guy who's a billionaire, right? Shut off selling drugs. And now 
he was able to parlay that to be a billionaire. So that you got to understand the messaging that's being sent to these young people that you can be a billionaire, which is damn near impossible to in the society. Um, they'd have select people they want to be billionaires, and they will be. But for the most part, we and for capitalism to work, you got to have a, a peasant class, and black people as a race has been designated to be that peasant class. And so that, that social engineering is very important to keep the game alive. The game is rigged. A lot of people understand that. But that amount of social engineering, as well as the drug trade and the commodification of rap to keep that thing going and give it credence is very important to, to our social engineering to be at the bottom rung of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you right. think about last spoken word? Spoken word. Have what you heard think about, about what? What do I think about what? Spoken word. There's something called spoken word. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Uh, um, yeah, yes, but it's look, it's poetry, man. Poetry didn't need a new name called spoken word or MC, and that's what hip hop called it. They just took poetry and called it a new name, and you know, it made them the inventors of something new, I guess. But uh, I, I pull up that spoken art is it? What did you call it? Spoke, po- uh, spoken art poetry. That's exactly what it is. It's spoken art. Poetry is another thing. And I wanted to comment on what Carl said. I mean, if we can some way um, convert this to be used for our liberation again, but as you said, uh, that's what it was created for. Yeah, that's exactly. what it was created for. If we get it back to that, but as as you said. It's controlled by by the powers that be because they weren't promoting the positive rap as it was commodified. They were promoting the gangster rap, and that's what happened. That's what happened to put you out of the game, so to speak, for the masses of young people, but the, uh, the non-conscious young people, is the fact that they were trying to uh, capitalize on gangster rap as opposed to conscious rap. Because I remember when rap first started. Well, it was when you say social engineering, let's think about when it came about. Weren't we coming out of the 60s kind of thinking? Weren't we pushing black culture? And suddenly we had a new culture called hip-hop that was directed at our children. We don't really understand it. Yeah, that really happened. uh, That and a war on drugs. It killed black history and, you know, opened the door for that. I believe that and and, uh, the war on drugs was the antidote for the uh, reaction to the civil rights movement. And uh, it actually, according to uh, a lot of prominent um, uh, 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 professors, you know, and, and black professors, they, they actually indicate that that was to counteract so the gains that we made on the uh, rights movement was not only the commodification of rap, but the war on drugs, which created mass incarceration. And, uh, and the, the rap is the language that gets you to the prison industrial complex. Thank you for your time, sir. All right. Thanks, well, thank, thank you. Thank you. All righty. Six away after the top there. Howard's calling. Howard's in Watts and listening to us. He's on line three. Howard, you're on with Amdi. Well, I do, but Amdi. Remember, I called you a couple weeks ago. I was calling to check, check you out, make sure you're all right. I just want to ask you a couple of questions about the Watts writers. Workshop was on Jinky and Daoud and Paris Earl affiliated with the Watts writers workshop. And then they were the first the- ones. They were, they were in the first wave, yeah, with Bud Schuberger. Yes, they were. Ojinki was one of them. There's a whole school of poets that came out behind Ojinki. 
most of the poets, uh, you know, they around, you know, they they got they that are that are our age or a little younger. Uh, they came from that Ojiki school that, you know, you know the Dogon tribe. And I, I practice that form of poetry, and it's only two forms. One is the uh, preaching poet, and the other one is the ancestral poet. The, the voices of the ancestors. Ojinki was that soul preaching poet, and uh, he's that style that you hear many of them do uh, today. Uh, that that came from Ojinki. Yes, Perry Cyril was was uh, also uh, an actor and 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 a, 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 a photographer. So uh, yes, they all were at the Watts Writers Workshop real early. I came on the second. Uh, was Roger Moore with you too at the time? Ooh. You know, he became a bully star, but did, did he come down to the writing workshop down there? Who? Uh, uh, Roger Moore. Roger, Roger Mosley. Mosley. Yeah, Roger, Roger Mosley was from Watts. He went to Jordan, man. Yeah, I remember. Uh, he, was he involved with the uh, uh, Let me just Brownie for the rest of the He's talking about Roger Mosley. He's talking about the actor, Roger Mosley. But how we got yeah, around because yeah. we got. Uh, Chairman Fred coming up next. But before we go to Chairman Fred, you know, we haven't even talked about the impact of radio because, you know, what has happened, at, too, with radio is because 50 years of hip-hop now, you have some these pop stations are now having to play hip-hop because the, the, the young people who are now adults uh, grew up with hip-hop. So that's and that's and, and there was a, 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 a uh, I guess a little firestorm on white radio. That, oh, we're playing. They're playing hip hop. They're they're playing Snoop Dogg. They're playing Run DMC. And and you know white folks are like, yeah, but we grew up because it's fifty years of hip hop. So anyway, that's another issue we haven't talked about. But bro, why do you I'm think the, it's like, why do you think it's been around fifty years? Because they want it to get because around. Most of, that's right. Because most of our music lasts about 10 years, R&B, right. and it moved to the doo-wop or whatever. Well, the reason why it lasts, because it's the greatest selling tool that you ever can run into. It's still drawers, shoes, socks, cars, houses, anything all over this whole earth. And they can't let it go. If your hip-hop right. hasn't had a hit record, I don't think, in in the last year or so, but it's still bubbling at the top because it sells. Right, and we got Chairman Fred on deck. I'm, I'm, before we go to him, though, because people have been asking me if they want you to to share some of this, if you if there's a poem that you could share, a real, uh, you know, not too long, because we come up on a break and we got Chairman Fred on deck. Real quick, you can man. share. I hear people say, eating every day. That the internet will set modern man free like a dolphin in the sea. Now, that statement completely confused me. Since when, my friends, has a net set anything free? Now, my simpleness I regret, but where's the freedom in a net? Fishermen make nets, spiders weave webs, both are traps. The spider knows all in his web. He keeps it in sight, day and night, wrapped real, real tight, with a click and a bite. Is it online, in line? Download, unload. Where's the freedom in a net? Still traps in your laps, net zero, hero, sky, tail, in, tail, DSL, email, tail, tail, tail. Processing your personal soul for info, no telling where it go. Only the net maker really knows. 
Now, you used to be able to shred it. Now, that's jive. The hard drive is always alive. Wrap real, real tight with a click and a bite. Spider-Man can pull you up tonight. Free man freely in a net will one day experience regret because there's no freedom in a net. Fishermen control their nets. Spiders control their webs. Who, my friend, controls the World Wide Web? You're in. What spider has you in its website? Wrap real, real tight with a click and a bite. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. All right, that's Brother Amde freestyling for us right there. This is this is how it all started. Uh, can we get some applause there, Kevin? Can we get <laughs> Brother? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Oh, man, that's that's awesome. You're teaching these youngsters. Uh, do you teach them? Do they, you mentioned that only, only um, uh, Easy e came to you, but now, some of these rappers... Probably they don't know about your history. You know, it all started with they you. Watch profits. The uh, the the last the do they do they, they, they come to you and ask you f- for advice? Well, you see, now as you get to be eighty-four years old, you learn to shut up. And why old people shut up when they have answers is because they have realized nobody's listening. Check That's that. why. We shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm there. A, a tweeter says, "Do you have a favorite rapper?" Uh, uh my favorite poet is uh, Sidney Patterson out of New Orleans. Uh, uh, I like a few of them, but I don't really hear them giving any direction. I don't really know none that I really. I like them all. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Alde, we're going to continue this conversation, but we got to uh, step aside, get caught up with the traffic and weather. And Chairman Fred is up next. If folks want to follow you, are you on social media? Is your book it's still yeah, available? Look up watchprofits.org. That's my whole history. It's called the Watch Profits Media Show. It's all right. got all Thank you for and I'm all kinds of films, and it's got over fifty years of history. And thank you for planting the seed for these young'uns uh, today, Brother Amdi. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for sharing it with us this morning. All right. All right. Thank you all for allowing me. Bye-bye.
uh, as Chairman Amde. We got to get caught up on the traffic. When we come back, Chairman Fred's on deck. We're going to talk with the chairman right here in four minutes on 1010 WOLB in Baltimore and the DMV. We're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. Thanks for rolling with us all morning long. 20 minutes after the top of the hour. Chairman Fred has joined us this morning. Good morning, Chairman Fred. Can you hear me? Good morning. Can you hear me? Oh, I can hear yeah, yeah, we can hear you now. How right are you? On, How's right mom's on. doing? Oh, mom, mom, mom is good. Mom is good. Yes, indeed. Yeah, we always got to check with the matriarch, make sure that mom's are good. Because mom's the backbone well, of right. what all of this where it started. <laughs> so thank you for sharing uh, uh, mom, your mom with us and your dad. But th- let's talk about what happened. Uh, Chairman Fred, you showed out. Your dad's 75th birthday. Somewhere he's looking down and he's, he's probably smiling and appreciating what you did. Can you share with the audience uh, some of the events that took place? Well, let me just, let me just preface with this, my brother. We showed out the people. Um, this is um, this would have been this would have been Chairman Fred's seventy fifth birthday. Um, I don't know if people got to get the news, the updates. Um, City of Chicago officially acknowledged uh, acknowledged August thirtieth, twenty twenty three is uh, Chairman Fred Happen Day. Follow with that, the village of Maywood, um, a place to seal. Uh, uh, the, the seal on the on the house, uh, 804 South 17th, uh, uh, Hampton House is uh, the, um, the uh, Maywood landmark. The, the Chicago, uh, uh, this came, uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson there himself at uh, Ground Zero 2337 West, Monroe slash. We're we, we going to fight to soon be uh, officially known as Chairman Fred Hampton Way and Mayor uh, Booker in, in Maywood, Illinois. But I reason I was on the press making being clear, we this is this is something that did, did not just happen overnight. This is um, people if they can go back to the archives of your shows, your programs I've been on. You know, been in the Hampton House on many occasions. No, no water, no heat. Um, you, you always uh, the outlets provided, you provide, and others provided to you know to keep you updated with the campaign, with what we're doing to, with the Hampton House, ongoing work of consistency of being you know. Um, in particular, those two dates, August 30th and December 4th, right there, ground zero. Uh, regardless how hot it is in August, how cold is in December, people have come out even during times such as the um, the pandemic, during the, the height of the pandemic, the coronavirus, going right there, fighting to maintain uh, legacy of Chairman Fred, even when it's you know it's, it's not popular under contested conditions. And it's one, it's one, I just want, I just definitely want to commend the people, the community. You know, um, in the spirit of internationalism, people who um, th- those those brothers and sisters inside those behind those uh, behind those walls, inside those concentration camps, that have um, stood simultaneously simultaneously with us, twelve o'clock Central Time, um, every December fourth, every August thirtieth. The, um, uh, the cold, the, the, again, the cold December fourth, that people stop what they're doing, that commitment, even though this was not a state-sanctioned uh, holiday in the past. But uh, refused to relinquish um, recognizing the legacy of uh, Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton on uh, August 30th and also on December 4th, the day in which two of our twin towers, quote unquote, fell. Um, 21 year old Chairman Fred, 22 year old Defense Captain Mark Clark. And I was just seeing something recently that I think it was acknowledged on September 11th. And I was seeing this at the, the roll call, they were giving the names of people. They were saying some of you still have not been, you know, have not been found. And just the, the discipline 
that you know the, the state sees, you know, saying you know, and recognizing different situations in regards to um, when the state officially acknowledges, and you know, to up to Andy with us in the colonized community on our own terms to see the importance, you know, saying a lot of people, a lot of people say, well, what's the big deal about being that disciplined at twelve o'clock, so on and so forth. And you talk about struggle, you know, uh, uh, structure and discipline is necessary. And I would just—I look forward to the day in our communities. I was just even um, seeing some of the footage yesterday in Chicago with the Mexicano community, um, uh, you guys, the Mexico Independence Day, and they were just uh, with the flags, you know, all downtown, just everywhere. And I said, look forward to the day that in. Um, Chicago and throughout, throughout the world, that it, you know, particularly on August 30th, we had those light blue and black flags flying with, with a boldness. We're talking about you know, um, not just not Chairman Fred in a subjective way, but you know, saying it, it's one of our, uh, as opposed to uh, the term role models, one of our real models. You know, saying to know that we got, you know, that we, that we, the day that we hold, you know, that, that's important, you know, because everything is political, including you know, days, you know, holidays. So. I just want, just want to preface with that. It's, 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 again, extend revolutionary appreciation to everyone, to the people that, that have consistent. And don't get satisfied. Don't, 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 don't say, okay, we got this now. No, because we, 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 we use this momentum to continue to work, you know what I'm saying, uh, and, uh, uh, with, with the legacy of Chamber Fred and others. Well, let me jump in here because you mentioned the brothers in captivity and, and, and Chairman Fred, we have some brothers in deep captivity out on the West Coast and they listen to us every morning. In fact, they used to call in and they had a burner phone and they, it got confiscated. They contacted me just a couple of days ago and said they, they want to come back on and, and talk to the folks or they've got another phone or another number. I don't I don't try to figure out how they do it. I want to tell you where they are, <clears throat> but they, they are in captivity uh, and they, they've been listening to us for years. And, and they call in and, and they explain what it's like to be in captivity. Well, having said that, though, the mayor came out to you. To, to you. How big a deal was that? Because I saw those those pictures where the mayor came out to you and your mom to, with a proclamation. How big a deal was that? So, um, technically uh, speaking, like even with even with the, uh, with the proclamation, you know, um, to my understanding, you know, to, uh, I mean, uh, the process of of both to adhere or acknowledge or read in city in, uh, in city hall, and even up, even up to the you know cl- uh, close to it happening, um, you um, there was uh, as I say, we got uh, it's a term where you where you said to move on a, a path of political pivot. Again, a panther, a panther, a panther, a panther, or a panther cub political pivot. In other words, things you know. Uh, a lot of times, people, a lot of people are used to. I was talking with this sister. She, her, she came in a delegation. They came in from uh, um, from the East Coast, uh, New York and Baltimore. And days before, she was asking like, "Well, wh- who's going to be here? Who's speaking this time?" And I said, "Sister, I said, all due respect. I know you, you, you probably used to dealing with you know." Um, Organizations or individuals that you know that have the you know the, the, like the nine to five or you know activist groups and things are laid out for them. I say a lot of these things we move on. I mean we we have to assess. Not that we move in reactionary, but we have to assess as it goes. We have to seize the time, political climate, and just what happens. I think um, with the city council, they uh, were they were not set to. I think even not not to, not to meet, or uh, but I think the next next two to three weeks. So the dynamic again, initially, uh, technically, it would be raised at the city hall. 
So for this to happen right there uh, on the site, uh, 2337, quote, I'm saying, quote, unquote, my role, because we look we, we, we forward to this being um, acknowledged as chairman for it have to wait. Timing, as I always say, like politics like real estate, timing, location, all that's important, you know what I'm saying? So for, you know, so for this to be you know, saying right there, it, it, was not, it was an addition to um, um, recognizing the, uh, um, um, the significance of not only this date, but also this location. You know what I'm saying? The, 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 the actual, I mean, right in front of the address, uh, location where, where, where it occurred at. And I, I think that's, that's, that's um, this is something that for, for quite some time has been um, buried. In the back of you know, in the back of a lot of people's minds, it was a subject matter that people were told don't don't speak about, um, or push it aside. In fact, even more, more than that, more than that, uh, brother Carl, more than that. Uh, over 25 years ago, I think it was, um, where um, the site where this where this occurred at, um, there was, it was this, this, the state that they said they technically tried to salt the earth. In other words. Prior to, prior to me being locked up uh, on the case, which uh, uh, I served close to nine years, we were talk- there was some discussion we were having about even obtaining the property uh, uh, right there. This is what assassination occurred at. And then I was hit with the case, and so a lot of our resources were redirected in legal fees and everything else. But then when I, was, when I got locked up, all of a sudden, this, the actual uh, location, uh, what apartment, what assassination occurred at, Within a three-week time period, that site was it was tore down. Then the headquarters, which is like a few blocks away on Madison uh, uh, Western, the, the headquarters of the Illinois Chapter Black Panther Party was torn down. And then uh, uh, there was a wall down the street on Madison and Levitt that had, the, had pictures of Malcolm X, Chairman Fred, uh, the picket of Mark Clark. That was torn down. And some people said, well, maybe it was a coincidence. But said, no, no, these were strategic hits. And, I, and, and then later on, when I came by this site, there was some individuals that was uh that were, that were peddling, they were, they, were, they were pushing what we call plantation poison, selling drugs right there, you know, right there. When I talked to them, and I said, "Y'all, you all know the significance of this location," and they said, "No, we really don't." But they said, "The police never harassed us right here." This is, and I said, "I said, well, this is what Chairman Fred, the fiscal of Mark Clark, was assassinated at." And the brother said, "Whoa, wait a minute, we got, we got, we got to, we got to clean, we got to leave him over here." And again, locations are political. You know, I, uh, even prior to we come back to engage in the campaign to save the Hampton House, which Chairman Fred grew up at, I was in West Oakland with um, Brother Newt, Minister U.E.P. Newton's uh, nephew, son of Melvin Newton. And we were talking about throughout the country, you know what I'm saying, in particular, throughout the world, really, but throughout the country in particular, places like Baltimore, uh, Oakland, wherever the Black Panther Party was, was strategically either birthed or organized that, how it was strategically flooded. Strategic fl- flood with various forms of chemical, biological warfare, aka plantation poison, drugs, and this is the salt of earth. You look at Napoleon's tactic. You know, what I'm saying with the pyramids in Egypt, the, the, uh, shooting the nose of the Sphinx, and so this area, this location, for this for, uh, for the proclamation to be read on that day, right there, was significant. Was again, this marked this, this um, uh, 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 the 75th, we have the 75th birthday of Chairman Fred. In fact, even throughout the throughout the day, the events we had. Uh, people are making jokes and saying, Chairman Fred, John, you be late. How are you going to be at the free breakfast uh, uh, event at 7.50 in the morning? I said, I'm going to be there. We have put it at 7.50 in the morning to tie the significance in that we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna pound 75 in your, in your mind and your heart one way, one way or another. And 
that um that, on that again on that date that location you know we we you know we, we, we had to see the time as old saying goes you know when opportunity knocks snatch the door off the hinges so it was so down the road when they when the attempts come to water it down switch it around you know said um we intend for this not to be uh in the halls document the halls of city hall but document in the hearts and the minds of people for generations to come all right, we come up on a break, Russell. When we when we come back, though, my question I'm gonna leave you when you think about this uh, during the break. Now that they've they've designated the Hampton House and 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 have also designated the August 30th, the, the Chairman Fred Hampton Day in Chicago, the Hampton House, of course, dedicated historic building in in Maywood in uh, near nearby Chicago. Do you think now that the, you know the quote unquote they've accepted you? Do you think they'll 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 leave you alone? No more harassment. They'll they'll start appreciating you now as a person, as the chairman Fred. You won't they won't be bothering you anymore now that they've sort of that the society through the mayor and through the city officials in Maywood have given a stamp of approval to what you've been doing. I'll let you respond to that when we get back. But we've got to take our last look at the news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. We're 26 minutes away from the top. I'll be back with four minutes with Chairman Fred. Response, you'd like to speak to Chairman Fred, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. And we'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOLB. Where information is power. And good morning again, family. Twenty minutes away from the top. Yeah, thanks for rolling with us this morning. It's been an interesting morning as usual. Before we go back to Chairman Fred, though, I just want to remind you that tomorrow's Friday, and we're going to give you a chance to free your mind, think for yourself, and reach out to us. It's an Overphone Friday program starting right here in Baltimore at uh, 6 a.m. Eastern Time on 1010 WOLB, and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. Chairman, so uh, the question I ask you now that you've sort of been validated, the stamp of approval, respect from from the this, the mayor that that uh, the day was your, your dad's official. Day in Chicago, uh, Fred Hampton Senior Day, and also the the Hampton House has also been verified. Do you think they're going to stop harassing you now? Do you think that all of a sudden the, the, the things will change because of uh, the validation you've gotten? Well, before I go into that, uh, brother Carl, I got people um, on my live saying they they trying to get it, they trying to listen in. So if you can't, um, I need that number to confirm the number of people to call in and listen in real All quick. Right. Let me give it to you. It's 800-450-7876. Your thoughts? Um, let, let, me, let, me preface, let me preface with this. Let me, let me preface uh-huh. with this. You know, uh, so people can be very, you know, um, it's a machine. It's, we've been under attack by a machine, uh, uh, as opposed to just you know, uh, I'll put in, in that context, um, a system that you know, um, say a system, you know, what I'm saying that, that uh, the different tentacles of it, you know, what I'm saying the media, uh, the police, directly, you you name it. So the uh, so I just want to only say that, put it in context that you know it's not because a lot of times people look at situations like this, just you know. Um, a simple, you know, it's as simply as you know, one move being covered. You know, what I'm saying, but uh, in other words, this, this is a leak. This is revolutionary. This is, uh, this is again a revolutionary leak to help, uh, you know, bring light. You know, what I'm saying, and uh, um, it's kind of like we said around in regards when the, when the movie was released. It it does put it. You know, what I'm saying, it makes it more uh, okay for people to acknowledge it. In fact, 
it was uh, they had a, uh, a hip hop event, uh, uh, African Fest in Chicago several days later, and a brother was introducing me, and his young brother, uh, his young artist coming from Chicago, Rico Shy. He said, it's Chairman Fred, because the guy come on saying Fred. You say, it's Chairman Fred. He said, you can say it now. You say, it's official. It's official holiday. And everybody start laughing. And so that, that, that it, it is, you know, so again, to, and I want to, I want to point it out, that the, the, the proclamation acknowledges it's Chairman, you know, uh, Chairman Fred Hampton. So that, that, that it, it does, uh, but I want, uh, it does, gives a, um, not only for our community, you know what I'm saying, but it's, 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 uh, something that, puts in the capacity of many people to say, okay, it's official. But however, let me say in the same breath, um, whether, you know, whether the um, slavery, whether, whether the act of chattel slavery is technically, you know, um, legal, illegal, outlawed, or, you know, covert or overt, whether it be slavery, whether it be uh, a sharecropping, you know, realizing the different, uh, on, this, on this plantation, uh, people should just never be to the point of, you know what I'm saying, to say, okay, now, you know, that um, the ongoing, uh, we, 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 the ongoing uh, uh, attacks that our, our people, our movements, our representatives have been subjected to since day one um, by the system, that we, that we should get comfortable and say, okay, well, now, you know, it's over. And we, we do we, we do commend, we appreciate these moves. And as, as our, our GM theoretician, Franz Fanon, has said, you may accept the concessions without compromising our principles. So again, we say, you know, we say you know, again, August thirtieth. As official from here on now, it's Chairman Fred Hampton Day. So let's um, we uh, we uh, uh, we celebrate. We we celebrate and we struggle. We can walk in true gum at the same time. Uh, that's good. From here on out, it's going to be Fred Hampton Day. Chairman Fred Hampton today. Let me correct yeah, myself you, you, too. You got you got you got to struggle, with, brother Carl. You got to. This is Chairman Fred Hampton Day, and, 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 That's right. and, I, I, and we want people to get up in the morning and just just try it. Just you know, and people say, well, some people say they someone asked me say, well, what's the big deal? I know you you say about the chairman. I say it must be a big deal because you see how. Our people have an issue. A lot of times, people have an issue with saying it. It's like I think back when I was in um, it was in uh, 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 what grade? I was in elementary school, and I had one of the teachers that said something about what does it make a difference what color Jesus is. I said, okay, we'll make him black then. She said, oh no. I said, okay. I said, it must be it must be something to this then. Well, us the, the, so we like and, and people acknowledge in other arenas like they say, well, you know, like like with the race conversation. People say, well, they refuse to call President Obama president. The terms are, are political. I, you know, I tell you, like I, I called the end of the brother um, with the poetry, and, I, and it was a great, a phenomenal piece he just laid out. You know, and I, I thought you, know, you think about that, the internet. You know what I'm saying? And certain terms, we have to start, you know, recognize significance of that. For our people to see a representative that's official, you, you know what I'm saying? Um, a, lot of, a lot of people have never seen an official organization that stood on its own terms. And that's 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 that impacts you. I you know I you know a lot of people you know I mean I see it you know, and like um we 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 have to, it's not it's not ego tripping. It's really putting the official capacity from a colonized community, more oppressed people, stand on its own terms. The titles, the structure, is is it, it, it produces a different sort of individual. You, you follow what I'm saying? And I you know I, yeah. I I've, I've seen individuals who they who have no frame of reference of. Black people, a black organization, you know what I'm saying, standing up, you know what I'm saying, 
of, of calling us contradictions, and even in death, when uh, the picture with the police carrying Chairman Fred's body out, they're chanting, they're chanting, Chairman Fred is dead. Even see the you know, even uh, the, the acknowledgement, you know what I'm saying? And it's something that people talk about discussion, but think about reparations, issue reparations, uh, for us, for even our pain to be acknowledged. You know, you know what I'm saying? And it's, you look at the psyche because a lot of our people, it's not about. Um, uh, I said, well, what if these people had all these resources, Oprah Winfrey's like, what if they gave some money to, actually, it's like Ralph Ellison talking about the invisible men. I'm a paraphrase, invisible man and woman. Just to be, I mean, not, not, I'm not talking about like, uh, like some people just want some attention. I'm talking about the, the, the acknowledgement that, you know what I'm saying? That, I mean, you had an organ that stood up that, that was, I mean, that called a question about sickle cell anemia. You know what I'm saying? There was disproportionate impact in our people. Did not wait on some doctor. Called, not only called, not this, they just didn't get involved in what Chairman Fred called intellectual masturbation. They they dealt with, you had, and they, 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 they serviced the people. They went to the people's homes. You had Deputy Minister of Health, Ronald Doc Satchel, who was a college student on a university. He heard Chairman Fred speak. He left school, committed sacrifice. People in Vietnam to this day talk about him. The deputy minister, Chairman Fred, said, you're sick, don't go down to Cook County Hospital. You might go down there with a common cold, you come up dead, just so happen somebody else needed your brain tissue, your sex organs. Come on, see Dr. Feel Good. You know what I'm saying? They had contradictions. You know what I'm saying? They had, I mean, terms and titles and call the question. It's, it, 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 you can see it's, it's, it's like a cleansing process. You know what I'm saying? It's like people holding in, you guys speaking, and people's, it, it, it puts a ceiling, not a glass, a concrete ceiling on what people can grasp. Many people are incapable of even grasping that, you know what I'm saying? Or a situation in front of the Hampton House and, um, a, few weeks, a couple of weeks back. And um, uh, I was struggling with this sister on the phone about the terms, you know what I'm saying? And, 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 and and I was telling, I was you know I said in the free world I'd probably be a psychiatrist. I was telling about you know I was giving like a, a analysis of you know um, why certain the damage you know what I'm saying I, 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 in my my journal I have to see it through the door you know what I'm saying the damage in our communities and and when I was talking to her this young young sister had got the car she with her, with her guy when she got the car I noticed certain things she got the car her guy was holding her purse. She was. She got. She when she she ran up to the house. Hampton house. She grabbed her. She say, "Ain't this with dudes? Ain't this with Fred? Have to live there?" She grabbed her. Door. I said, "Hold on, sister. Be cool." I said, "Slow down, sister." I say, "This is where Chairman Fred resided. This is his home." I say, "I say, hold on. You just grabbing doors, trying to run up in there. Wait a minute." And I said, "I actually say, I said, out of curiosity, would you run up in a dope house like that?" And she said, "Huh? No." I said, "A certain amount of respect you have for that, right? Or, or, or the trap house." She said, "Yeah, yeah." So I'm talking to her. And then she was saying, uh, Fred Hampton, and the sister on the phone would say, why aren't you struggling with her to say chairman, Fred? I say, first of all, this young lady, you know, I say, you have, to go through, you have to go through degrees, steps. This young lady don't know what a man is. Let's know what a chairman is. And see, a lot of times we draw the foregone conclusion that people, they move around. Like when you're driving out there, you say everybody got sense they're driving. And uh, uh, one of Chairman Fred's interviews, he talked about this thing, about I think it was a hecatomb. He say. You know, you know, this is a monkey driving car, make him a human being. You know what I'm saying? He's, he's talking about the contradictions that the, uh, the presiding judge, Judge Hoffman, uh, on the case of um, Chairman Bobby Seale in the Chicago 7 slash Chicago 8. And he was saying that this, this individual is incapable 
of your saying presiding over the case of our chairman. This was Chairman Spray was talking about the case when Chairman Bobby Sitt was chained and gagged in federal court downtown. And people say, well, it's a judge. You got to have sense. And Chairman Frey said, no, no, not the psychic of the people. You just automatically believe that, you know, the this person is suited up, just robe, they're in a position to do that. You know what I'm saying? For other jobs, you have to go through like a test to make sure you fit to do this, so on and so forth. And with our people, you lot of people trying to foregone conclusion that people have seen or have some concept of black men or black women, you know, you know what I'm saying? Or let's go on a black organization, you know what I'm saying? And I, and I sympathize, I do, I sympathize with so many people who have never had that, that frame of reference, you know what I'm saying? But I refuse, I refuse to relinquish. I refuse to relinquish what I know about a group of brothers and sisters that basically range from the ages of 14 to 24 years old. And, you know what I'm saying? They're still up on their own terms. They, you know what I'm saying? the first few breakfast programs. And I refuse to wait on people, you know what I'm saying, to catch the, 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 the serving the people. We're going to lay it out for them. And most things people will catch up and say, whoa, I, did. I talked to a sister the other day. She had not seen the movie Judas and the Black Messiah. And her, you could see what her arrogance was. She's like, well, what about this? You're going to do this and that? And then when she went, she had no concept of revolutionary organization. Everything she had, things be laid out like you know, it be laid out for you. Okay, this, this is what you do. This is your, this is your so-called activist work. This is what you're doing. And she, you know, in her field, it was it was progressive. Just even seeing them at the, the, the movie, because you know, since she's going back and saw the movie, and we talked, they talked about because the, the director of the movie, Shaka King. The director of Judas, he was here. He was, he was right doing the whole process, you know. And he talked about the, how it impacted his life. But the sister, after seeing the movie, it gave her like a glimpse into what, what, what we're dealing with, you know. And the deal is, I tell people, a lot of people say, well, now they understand. The reality is, the reality is. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. But you, you, know, but, you know what, Chairman, because we, we run out of time here, but I just want to congratulate you because you, you did not compromise. You you did. You stood your ground just like your dad did. You did not because you could have gotten all of these things if you had compromised. You know that if you had done something yes. that the, the establishment wanted you to do, you could have gotten that proclamation a long time ago. You could, you could get for that for your dad and for the Hampton House. But you you stood you stood strong and didn't yes. compromise at all. So I want to congratulate yes. you on that. Thank you, thank you, brother Carl. Thank you. I humbly say thank you. And I, you know, and I, and I, and I, I I'm, I'm humbled. I'm honored. And I, you know, and, I, and you, and, and, and I recall a, you know, a situation. You know, uh, brother um, Bishop Edgar Jackson said to me one time. Uh, he seen me get off the public transportation of the bus, 
at the protest, and you seen all the other people that are, you know that we organized with us. They they got their big money and they grant. They was riding past me, and, he, and then he said, "Chairman, he said I can." He was on 62nd of Justine. He pulled me to the side. He said, I, "He said I know you're going through a lot, man." He said, "But I always remember this." He said, "The lion in the uh, wild is not to get to eat as much as the lion in the zoo." He said, "But the meat tastes different." The lion in the wild. You say, hold, you say, hold. You say, just stand, man, I, 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 I recall that. And also, in addition to that, I'm cut from a cloth. You know what I'm saying? You know, like I say, the bar has been up. You know what I'm saying? And like I say, in some situations, that can suffice for people to, like, you know, I, I had some of these, you know, these, these um, <laughs> local hustlers even say recently, said, no, Jim, you into this, you, you into this, you really believe in the people, you know? And we had to be clear on that. that, that a lot of people. I mean, there's no 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 slight no ego tripping. I'm saying nobody better than nobody else. But to really to, to have something to believe in, you know what I'm saying? That's we can right. can't draw the full conclusion. And, and Chairman, <laughs> we're just flat out of time. But uh, uh, hit okay. us back when you know uh, Fred Hampton Way, Chairman Fred Hampton Way. Whenever that's a reality, or if you need some help getting that done, let us know. I will definitely call on you again. Thank you. Thank the listening audience. Brothers, they love and respect and free for the ongoing continuous, consistent support. Thank you all so much. All right. Thanks, Chairman. Folks, you're late. We're running out of here. Stay strong. Stay positive. Please stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow morning, 6 o'clock, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power.